This is one of the things um, as you get older, and I realized this when I was younger, but more so now, like, and Sergio is a great example of this. He's, he's a super competitive guy, um, as am I. Um, he's a fantastic human being. Um, when we get along great off the race course, um, and I love the fact that when we go to the starting line, that um, I can look at him in the eye or in the middle of a race or whatever and know that he doesn't care how well we get along off the track, he wants to kick my ass. And, and I'm sure he understands the same thing about me. It, all the cards are on the table. And it's okay. It's okay to be competitive in that sense. It's not cool to be competitive in that sense in so many other parts of your life um, because it's, you'd be an asshole in a lot of situations. But in that framework, it's okay, and it's great to have that in your life and have people in your life who you have that very unique relationship with. host Mario Fraioli and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Every week on this show I try to glean unique insights and uncommon inspiration from a wide range of personalities in an effort to help you see what's possible through the lens of running. This week's episode is a long one but it's a pretty special conversation with one of my first post-collegiate running heroes Peter Gilmore who incredibly and ironically enough is now my teammate on the West Valley Track Club Masters Racing Team. In the early 2000s, Peter was one of the top marathoners in the U.S. He finished 10th at the 2005 Boston Marathon and later that year represented the U.S. in the marathon at the World Championships in Finland. The next year, 2006, he finished 7th at Boston in a personal best 212.45. I didn't know him at the time, but I looked up to Peter from afar because he was everything that I wanted to be in the sport. An underdog, a guy who wasn't a star in college, he didn't have a shoe contract, but he busted his butt and became really good. In this conversation, we talked about all of that, but what I was really interested in was his path back to the competitive side of the sport a few years ago after an eight-year break from serious training and racing. We got into how and why he came back in 2018, as well as why he retired in 2010 in the first place, and that part of the conversation went in a direction that I didn't expect it to go. We also talked about what's different for him now as a master's athlete versus when he was younger, what it was like spending six weeks training in Kenya right after college and what he learned from that experience, and a whole lot more. Before we dive in, a big thank you to Tracksmith for supporting this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is an independent running brand inspired by a deep love of the sport. Their summer collection is now available and features staples ready for your next adventure. This is a great collection. I personally love the Run Cannonball Run Shorts. For me, they double as running shorts and a swimsuit that dry in a flash after getting wet. The Off-Road Shorts are great for the trails. They have a two-in-one design for maximum comfort and four spacious pockets for whatever you need to store in them, making them ideal for when I'm out romping around in the woods. The Run Cannonball Run Tee is super light, and I swear that it dries before I even finish running. You can check all of these items out at tracksmith.com 
and use the code MARIO22, that's M-A-R-I-O-2-2 at checkout to receive free shipping on your order. And on top of that, 5% of your purchase goes to support the Brave Like Gabe Foundation, which helps fund rare cancer research. And this is an organization that is near and dear to me as the founder, the late Gabe Grunewald, was a friend and previous guest on this podcast way back on episode 31. So go check that one out if you haven't already. That's all I've got for the introduction. Please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation with one of my personal running heroes, Peter Gilmore. Before we get started, um, or I get started asking you questions, I should say, I've got to tell a little story. So before I started running... I was really into basketball and I played in high school and I think I could have played probably like D3 in college, but I was the same size that I am now. I was like 5'8", 140 pounds. And um, even as a, a point guard, like that's, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty small. Um, but then I got into running and really got into it. And I mean, I haven't really looked back since, but when I played basketball, I was always like a bit of an underdog because um, I was always small and I grew up in central Massachusetts, Worcester specifically. And like the basketball hero of Worcester is Bob Cousy, who was a Celtics legend, but also went to college at Holy Cross. And I just really looked up to him because I was like, oh, if he could like make the NBA, granted he was, it was like, you know, way before I was even born that he was in the NBA. I'm like, I'm like, maybe I could do, maybe I could like do that. And then I looked at all these other like underdogs, um, Steve Wojciechowski, who was at Duke. Um, I loved like Pistol Pete Maravich, even though he was before my time. Um, but all these guys I thought like I could, I could emulate and I wanted to be like them on the basketball court and hopefully like playing college. Well, anyway, fast forward to when I started running in high school, I was like, I was okay. I was like a 952 miler, 430 miler, but wasn't gonna get a scholarship to go running college off that. But I was like really, really into it. And I knew that I had a lot of potential ahead of me. And then in college, I was, I was all in cross country track. I saw rapid improvement. I was a D2 all American in cross country. I qualified for nationals on the track. And when I graduated college in 04, all I wanted to do was run professionally. And I had no idea what that meant. I knew there were groups. Um, I think Hanson's, it wasn't even Hanson's Brooks back then. I think it was like Hanson's Distance Project was a thing. There was like Zap Fitness. There were these other like small groups, but I just wasn't good enough. Like I was, I was a 1430 5K runner and a 409 miler in college. But I was like, well, maybe I could be good at the marathon one day. So I actually moved out to Eugene, Oregon the summer after I graduated. And I joined a, a group out there, which I, I was not getting paid. So I was definitely not a, a professional. It was called Team Eugene. They had a couple other like 14 flattish, you know, kind of guys. So I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to live the dream. I'm going to make it. But much like when I was in high school playing basketball, I was looking for like my hero that, that I could be like. And so this was like, Fast forward a year to like 2005. I think you finished 10th at the Boston Marathon that year, if I'm That's not, right. if yeah, I'm not mistaken. And then later that year, that summer, didn't you run at the World Champs, I think, in, yes. in Finland? That's right. It was a Helsinki World Champs. Yeah. Uh, they took five of us there, five Americans, and a yeah. uh, cool, really cool opportunity. First, yeah. first and last time I ever got to do that. Yeah. So I was like, who the hell is this Peter Gilmore guy? Because I didn't pay any real attention to 
what was happening in college in the years before I was there, certainly on, on the West Coast, um, being an East Coast guy. I was like, who is this guy? I'm like, oh, he, he ran at Cal. Well, I'm like, Cal's not you know, it's not Stanford. Like that was the only program I ever knew of was Stanford because Stanford would send guys to BU in the wintertime and we would race against them. Uh, so I knew they were, they were a good program. I was like, who's this guy? I'm like, oh, he, he was at Cal. I'm like, how good was he? Well, he wasn't, he wasn't even like an all American. So he wasn't even like that, that good. Um, and I was like, I want to be like this guy. Um, because my goal having grown up in Massachusetts was to win the Boston marathon someday. And my first post-collegiate mentor and still a very good friend to this day is Bob Hodge. And he he was from that area. He was third at Boston. I was like, Bob Hodge is kind of my Bob Cousy, but I was like, um, Peter Gilmore is going to be the guy that I try to model myself after. Cause I think you were four or five years older than me at the time. So anyway, I don't know where I was going with that, but, um, we're sitting down now, like 17 years later, having a conversation and, uh, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the morning shakeout podcast. Thanks, Mario. It's a real pleasure to be here. I, I've told you this before, but I want to tell you now uh, on the podcast, I'm a huge fan of the show. Thank you. And I think you do an excellent job. And I discovered it, um, just a little backstory, I, I kind of came across the podcast for the first time uh, right around the pandemic when running was so important for everybody uh, and just kind of getting out and, and trying to adjust to this new normal. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't anybody to run with either because everybody was still freaked out about uh, running right. with people. So I basically ran with you uh, in my <laughs> ear. <laughs> well, thank Going you. back through, at that point, you've been doing it for a while. So there's a lot of back catalog, and I really appreciated that. I, and I, you put a ton of work into it, I can tell, in the questions and your approach to it. So thank you for that on, from me, and I think also on behalf of, of all the listeners uh, because it definitely shows. Well, that's cool to hear. And I didn't know that until you just told me right now. I think the first time that we actually spoke to one another was last fall at the Clarksburg Half Marathon. Um, when was that? November? That was November, early November, yeah. Yeah, and I think we we met briefly there. And it's just kind of wild to be like sitting down here with you now, having this conversation for the podcast. And then also, we are now teammates with the West Valley track club and we'll be on a scoring cross country team together this fall. And I'm like still having a hard time wrapping my head around that. When I, when I think back to 24 year old Mario in 2006, like looking up to this Peter Gilmore guy who finished top 10 at the Boston marathon and was someone that I was trying to emulate myself. Yeah. You're going to love the fall masters cross country scene, Bay area and, and nationally, but especially in the Bay area. Cause we have, um, there's a, there's a club race every weekend, as you know, and and there's a there's competition for everybody you know it's 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 really cool to watch the people at the front racing but you could go back and if you have an educated eye you can see that there's a there's a tight race in the women's 60 year old division yeah. you know whatever it might be everybody can come out and have a great race any given weekend and there's clubs so it's a team component and uh, frankly the masters get into it even more than the open level and and that's cool being here now but you know, I ran my first uh, PA, f- for those who don't know, Pacific Association is like the local USATF chapter here in the Bay Area. Um, I was dragged out to my first PA race my sophomore year at Cal. I was redshirting that year, and Richie Boulay, who uh, just had just graduated, drove me out to Rockland, which is outside of Sacramento, mm-hmm. for the PA race because I was redshirting, so I couldn't run with the Cal team, but there was all these other races I could run. And so he drove me out there in the morning, which is like a two-hour drive, and Jamie Harris uh, was running right next to me for most of the race. He was uh, right around that, let's see, he won nationals in the 1,500 meters in 97, I believe, so that was 96, so it was right before that. 
And I was, I was in, like I was fully hooked at, there at whatever age that was, 19. Um, here I'm racing this, you know, famous kind of up and coming miler in a cross country race, this hilly, tough four mile thing. We were battling for like fourth place, I think. He, he beat me. Uh, but but the, the miler or two when I was in that race with him and, and with all these other Richie was in there and a couple other, you know, guys who were older and, and faster than me, but just being in there and running cross country in that setting, I thought was so cool. And then over and over again through the years, I went back to that um, circuit, even when I was like, we, you talked about a minute ago, you know, running uh, marathons for the best years that I had in the marathon, I would still go run those PA races when it made sense and just loved it. Um, for one thing, you could always get a good race against somebody. And the other point too, is it became a reference point. You go back and, and right. really gun, for instance, like the four mile cross country course at Golden Gate Park. I knew what it meant to run like 20 minutes and 10 seconds on that thing, which was always, almost always the same course. And I knew that if I was a little faster than that, this was a good check for where my fitness was or slower, and you could kind of triangulate around it. And it was fun. I, I, I always enjoyed it and still, still love it. It's my f- absolute favorite part of the sport. Are you surprised on some level to still be training and racing as a master's runner? I know there was a period of time that you took off after your – best marathon years and the last few years of coming back competitively. But I'm setting this up because I, I read an interview with you from many years ago as I was preparing for this. And you actually had a quote in there that said, I can't ever see myself racing as a master's or anything like that. And here you are at 45 years old, still getting after it or getting after it again, I should say, and have, you know, pretty big aspirations for this point of your life. Yeah, it's very much a um, hope I die before I get old quote, you know, coming back to haunt me. <laughs> you know, at, at the time, I remember it just thinking like I'm laying this, you know, when I said that original, I can't imagine myself running at an older age or at his master's athlete. Um, that was probably in the middle of some 140 mile training week, you know, total exhaustion, thinking like how sweet it would be to be able to go out for five or eight miles underneath the redwoods at an easy pace. And that was my only, you know, that, that would be the joy of running. And I could still see that being wonderful. Um, and I did versions of that throughout the years. Um, but at a certain point there was the draw of, of racing and testing myself one of the things that made a difference um, is that I had a clean break. Um, I had about nine years where I didn't compete at all, and I probably ran 15 miles a week on average, if that. And um, what that did was it allowed me, when I started training and running and racing again, to not have any need to compare what I'm doing now to what I did before. Um, I'm aware of the splits I used to run and now, but it is, it is not like, there's no way I'm getting close to those again. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. You needed that separation in order to be okay with it. Yeah. I wasn't going to ease into the uh, easing gradually to slowing down and, and I'll have to get used to slowing down again soon because age will, since I started racing again, I've been getting faster from age 42 to 45 now or whatever it was. Um, and that'll turn. I know it. And there'll be a point when whether I'm 47 or 46 or even right now when the age catch up and you start slowing down, that's okay. I'm, that's a different thing than the other part where if I would have kept training straight through, it would have been a slow kind of fade. And people do great with that. 
it, I probably would not have done so good with that. <laughs> when you were going through those nine years where you weren't training hard, you weren't competing, you're running 15 miles a week, I'm guessing just to keep in shape and get outside. Did you still think of yourself as a runner during that period? Great question. Um, I did because I was, you know, at the, at the start of that period, I had a lot of injuries and I couldn't keep running and I had to go get a real job because I was never, I, you know, I was a professional runner, but I wasn't raking in the dough enough where that was going to be the end all. And I could just go to a race expo every third weekend and make enough money. Like that was never going to be on the table for me. So I, I went and, and uh, got a job in the investment business, um, barely, toehold job, and worked my way into that. Um, we had kids, and I did a lot of those miles behind the stroller, um, and a lot of it was um, mental health, physical health. Uh, end of the day, I'd push the empty, um, this were when we were living in San Francisco, I'd push the empty stroller out two miles to where we had daycare, uh, put my daughter in it, and turn around and go back home. And I do that a few days a week, and, and that was training. I got a lot of strange looks uh, with the empty stroller running, pushing out there. Uh, but it was great. And, and for a while, that was, you know, but I, to get back to your question, uh, yeah, because cause I, I, I'll always be a runner. It's a differentiating thing and a, a self identifying thing. Um, you want to be more than that, and I, and I don't, that's not the only thing I think of myself as, but. Um, but yeah, even during that time, I definitely was. Yeah. I asked that because I know a lot of people who, like us, ran competitively in high school, in college, and then maybe even beyond for a while, where their idea of running is doing two workouts in a long run every, every week, hitting you know X amount of miles. And then when they stopped doing that for whatever reason, whether it was a choice they were forced to by injury, you know, life circumstances necessitated that they couldn't do that anymore. Many of them will say, well, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a runner anymore. And even if they, even if they are running much like you were like a few miles every week, but not doing the track workouts, not training for races, maybe not following the sport at all. They feel like they've lost that part of their identity because their perception of it was this one thing. And if I'm not that one thing anymore, then I must not you know, be the thing. I'm just, I'm doing this thing that resembles sort of what I used to do, but it's not part of my identity anymore. Yeah. I have a lot of friends that that, that would apply to. Um, for me, I was totally checked out from the news of the sport, the competitive set. I, I vividly remember the Boston marathon bombing. I was, I was at work when, when that came across the, the kind of newswire. I, I remember when Meb won the next year. I love Meb. He's my favorite runner of all time and, uh, and someone I consider a friend. And so I was totally thrilled for that. But that was the limit of my very vivid memories of races that happened from, say, professionally from the time I wasn't involved in the sport, from, say, 2010 to 2018. I remember watching the Olympics, but I, maybe Mo Farah, but that was it. Like, I was definitely checked out from following the sport. But I, like you said, I still identified as a runner and I still get out, push the baby stroller around. Sometimes it was very early morning runs by myself, just two, three miles to, to wake up and start the day. Um, but it was always a, a little bit of a part of it. I guess when I got back into competition, one of the benefits of that was that I never really put on a ton of weight, which is always a hurdle for people coming back in, mm -hmm. into fitness. And um, for better or worse, it kept me in the, in the orbit of... Yeah of training, if not being very serious about it. Yeah. That partially answers what was going to be my next question, which 
was did you pay any attention to the sport of running during the time that you weren't training and, and racing hard? And since you just answered that, let's go back to when you stopped running in 2010. I mean, what necessitated that shift in your life? I had a bunch of injuries. It really started for me, um, I would say, in, in spring of 2000. Eight, I went to the London Marathon, and I was in great shape. I had been training uh, in Flagstaff in the Bay Area, doing altitude camps up there, uh, which I, prior to that, had been doing for about a year and a half. Um, and I went to London. I Back up, two weeks before London, I went to do my last big workout, which um, I was going to do 10 easy, 10 at marathon pace. Uh, at Sawyer Camp Trail for those Bay Area locals, right off 280 in San Mateo, great spot. Fastest was, tempo you'll ever run. Yeah, um, if Strava existed then, <laughs> um, I wouldn't have the records because Ryan Hall would have them all. I could, <laughs> I could give you some good splits off those. But anyway, um, I, I'm on this, this you know, two, three weeks, whatever it was before London. And I, I did 10 easy. I did 12 at whatever, like 455, 458 pace. And I felt so easy. It was like a magical workout. I'd been in altitude. I was breathing easy back home. I was, I've, I was thinking I was in 210 shape. To me, that confirmed it. Um, everything was great. I changed my shoes at the car after the 12 marathon part, went back out to jog a half mile or a mile just to cool down. I, I went about a hundred yards and I felt something weird in my foot. Oh no! And, um, it was not like a, I can't run or I can't walk. It wasn't that it was much more subtle, but there's definitely a pop and it, it bugged me every run after that all the way into London. I, I went there and it was, you know, I, I, I raced the, um, ended up dropping out. I don't know when, maybe like 17 miles in. I came through the half at, at 65, uh, right on pace to, to PR and have a great race um, and felt easy. And then the foot started bugging, the leg started bugging, and all of a sudden it just kind of all fell apart. And that led to months of not being able to run. The foot just got worse. Um, I had little bouts where I'd come back and had good race. In fact, the last really competitive race I ran was I want to say it was January of 2010. No, it was. It was January of 2010, the Houston Half Marathon, and that was my PR, 63-53. And that was really the last competitive race I ran. Um, after that, it was just one injury after another. I was 33, I guess it would be 33 then. Um, and life was moving on. It was like, you can't keep, I, I was ne- it was just never a financially viable, uh, you know, it, it was financially viable for a short period of time. Yeah. But at a certain point, it wasn't. And it was like, okay, what's next? Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing for me as a fan and admirer of yours at the time that really appealed to me, that whole underdog thing is you, I don't think, ever had a, a shoe contract. Um, you were sponsored by MarathonGuide.com. I remember I had this photo of you in like the Marathon Guide singlet. And you, I mean, you have like the best race face of anyone that I've ever seen. But it was like a kind of classic Peter Gilmore race face that I've seen replicated in, you know, a dozen other photos of you that, that I've seen. But you, you know, you weren't one of those guys who were making like a comfortable living in the sport. I think you were making like enough that you could get by and and do it. But there really wasn't much runway there for you if you were to like get hurt or have like a bad year or two. I mean, you couldn't really do it to the level that some of the other full-time professionals were. Yeah, it was always a challenge. And it's a little bit different now. At the the time, um, this is obviously pre-social media and any of that. Um, there was the shoe companies and there was really nobody else because mm-hmm. of the way that the Olympic Committee and the IAAF set it up. You weren't allowed to have anything on your jersey except a shoe company's logo. 
um, which is insane and ridiculous. If if Apple wanted to sponsor Meb in the most valuable real estate he has to offer them, which is his chest in the major marathon, sorry, I can't do it. Um, so we actually we fought. Um, uh, my agent uh, Merhawi, who's Meb's brother and agent as well. Um, was instrumental in kind of pushing for change in that. And we had other sponsors lined up, including, like you said, MarathonGuide.com, which um, is is and was a website you go to to find basically every marathon on earth. But it's also the same company that ran the back software for signing up for many, many major marathons. So um, the gentleman who who owned that, John Elliott, was a a big fan of the sport, and he helped me out a lot, along with others, Michael Wardian, uh, several other athletes that got sponsorships through that company. And it was terrific, but it was limited. You know, we couldn't do a lot of the stuff we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And getting circling back to the social media component, now I see athletes that really have control over their image, their personal brand, for, for lack of a better word. They can go out there and, and put themselves out there and control it. Back then it was... Uh, if ASICs wanted to sponsor you, it was up to the ASICs marketing department to market you. You hadn't, you couldn't go to a magazine and get yourself in there. Right now, you can, you know, you can go on YouTube and TikTok and Instagram, whatever you want to do, and put it out there. And yeah, ASICs might do something too, but it's mostly, and fortunately, uh, a good thing I think, up to the athletes, uh, which is a big change. I mean, back then it was like the, the shoe companies would call and it would be like, we could give you some gear and you know. 200 bucks a month or something. And I was thinking to myself, well, if I keep improving, I don't want to sell short what I could get six months from now by locking this thing in for a couple of years. That was my mentality of yeah. it. And so I ended up working a bunch of odd jobs. I mean, I was, my friends used to joke about it that I was like the guy with like six jobs. Um, I worked at Woodside Elementary uh, for Bay Area folks, a great uh, place to park for your trail runs. Yeah, you go to Hutter Park. Park from there. <laughs> so I would go after school. I worked with um, Nate Bowen, who's now our common teammate on West Valley. Uh, we worked there in the classroom um, with kids that had special needs, um, which was a great job. I was the after-school gym guy at the school. who would open the gym, hand out the basketballs, four hours later, lock the gym. Like um, We started a youth track club. We um, I, you know, it was 18 little jobs here and there to make ends meet, so to speak, while I was still running a lot. And then there became a point when um, I did better in the marathons and get appearance fees and things like that where that faded away and I was able to just focus on the running component for a few years. But yeah, it was never um, what some of the, uh, the folks who were, who were better, more marketable, let's be honest, uh, than I was. Mm-hmm. So they deserved it. Um, that had a straight, you know, big shoe contract, and that was it. And they, you know, it was it was a different framework. It, it was creative. You had to. It was sort of like here's the situation. It was it maybe iterative is the best word. Um, you're forced to find a way. Like you said at this at the start, you were really, really, really into running. You were all in in college and afterwards, and I was too. I was like, I'm going to do this professionally. Um, I saw enough glimpses of success at a younger age. Um, that didn't always pan out in, in national championships or anything, but enough that I said um, to myself that I can, I, I owe it to myself to see this through because that window is only open for a while when you're young at a true high level. So, um, so why not, right? What's the downside? Mm-hmm. And to me, there wasn't much downside, but then it became how do, we, how do you survive? Like, how do you make this viable? So then that forced other decisions where you're, you get creative with it. Did you always view yourself as kind of a scrappy underdog? Uh, yeah, I think I did because, um, 
a scrappy underdog, but but not to the point where it was like putting myself down. Right. Um, because I was never like a state champion in high school. I got close. I was second once in Division Two in California in cross country. Um, but we, I was at a high school, and, and a, the way California sets up their high school stuff, LA City section was was smaller and less competitive than the area around it. They basically surrounded it. So I was competing at a smaller stage, and I was doing well, but it was very much big fish in a small pond. Mm-hmm. And if I just looked five miles over there, over there, that was the big pond, and, and I kind of knew where I stood. I think I always had a pretty good, because I was such a fan of the sport, I'm sure you were too, that I had a very good idea of how good I was relative to everybody else. Um, that never, um, and, and that, that breeds a little bit of an underdog mentality, I think. Back to 2010, you start the year off at Houston, you run a PR in the half marathon. And then, I mean, for, for that period of your life, I mean, your competitive career was ostensibly over not long after that. Was there a, a clean break or a moment that said to you, all right, Peter, time to move on, put this running thing behind you for now? No, like a lot of people, it was a slow kind of demise through a few months there. There was a certain point, and I want to say it was in the summer of that year, where I kept trying to race, or not even race, I kept trying to train again and being hurt, various injuries. And um, there was one point I remember being out on a run uh, along the bay in San Mateo, which is close to where I lived at the time. And I I may have had a uh, stress fracture in my sacrum. It was an extremely bad pain. <laughs> I've had two of those. What did it feel like? I can tell you. <laughs> it, it was rivetingly bad, and I couldn't walk straight for like weeks. Yeah, might have been um, a stress fracture. In your but sacrum. I was like, I mean, I, to me, it was like that was the last straw. I'm not even gonna get this diagnosed. Like, what are they gonna do? They like, can't put your sacrum in a cast. Yeah. Um, so I, that to me was the straw that broke the camel's back. Now that was like, whatever, seven, eight months maybe after um, Houston. So there was a time there where it was like, and finally it was like, okay, I got to get a job. So I got serious, you know, with putting the resume out and, and finding something that worked. In the meantime, I worked at a shoe store uh, selling shoes for a few weeks and until a job came through. And I was kind of like doing whatever. But at that, with that injury, my mind shifted. Mm-hmm. There was like, I think that was the, what you were getting on the question. There was, a, there was definitely a, a, a solid amount of time where, where it was in between. But then there was a definitive point where I was like, okay it's time to figure out the next chapter. Yeah. Did you get your first real job that year or was it 2011 sometime? Do you it remember? was November of that year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got, I got an investment job. Uh, I, I had gone back in 2006 to get a master's. Uh, I was always into investing. I picked up a book on Warren Buffett in college um, before he was the world famous Warren Buffett when I was in a library in San Francisco. Um, Actually, I was doing a job, when, uh, an odd part-time job. I was tutoring a kid, and he was doing his homework. I picked up a book, and, um, and uh, it was like a light bulb turned on in my head. I said, that just makes sense, the way that he's thinking about the world. Because it, it wasn't the same way that um, I knew a lot of um, that portion of the professional world thought about things. And it just it really rang a bell with me. And put that aside, then years later, I was still kind of into it on an amateur level, my my. Um, then fiance now wife Liz said you need to go like this is when I was running marathons uh, well she said you need to have a backup plan so I went back I got a master's in finance at night uh, at Golden Gate University in San Francisco Um, 
and the gentleman who was um, one of my professors there offered me an internship um, in his fund, and I did that in 2006. That was the exact same time that I ran my marathon PR in Boston, to, uh, 212.43. I was seventh that yeah. year while I was interning at his, his fund in San Francisco, and he offered me a job. Uh, and when the internship ended as an analyst at his fund, and it was exactly what I wanted to do um, long-term professionally at exactly the wrong time in my life. Yeah, you just run the race of your life. <laughs> I just ran the race of my life. Like I, I, I knew I had a lot more to offer. Um, I was thrilled with the way everything was going. So I turned him down. And as luck had it, uh, not the first try, but after a couple tries in 2010, I ended up um, getting a job at that same firm. Yeah. So after the, let's just call it sacral stress fracture in 2010, getting the job, moving on with your life, do you remember when you first put the running shoes back on again and just went out for a jog and said, all right, I'm not like working toward anything here. I'm just going out for an easy jog. Yeah. I think it was like one of the first days at that job. I came back at night. It was winter, so it was dark, right? And I remember running over to the track in Burlingame, which was like a mile or two from my house, and just doing some laps. It was dark, and I just wanted just wanted to do something, and it just felt totally different. <laughs> it was it was very much like you are not a competitive runner anymore. This is a different deal, um, which was fine. You know, it was, but you made peace with it. I made peace with it. Yeah, it was fine. It was just stress relief at that point, mm-hmm. and it stayed that way till till twenty eighteen. Yeah. So let's fast forward to twenty. 18, what was the spark that reignited the competitive fire for you? Um, so I signed up for the Chase Corporate Challenge at work. Uh, for those who uh, work uh, in companies that support that, it's like, a, you know, at San Francisco, it's a, it's a weird distance, like a three and a half mile race. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was still thinking of myself as a good runner, fast runner. So I signed up for this thing two weeks before it happened. And I thought, well, I better go, you know, do a workout. I better go run. <laughs> So I did a tempo run on Embarcadero from the ferry building to down just past uh, what was then probably AT&T Park or Pack of Jesus. I don't know. They changed the name so many times. Whatever the Giants play, um, there and back, four miles. And I, I, I almost died. Like I, It was so painful. I mean, I, I, I went back to the gym where I, where I would shower. This is on my lunch break. Um, and I was just cooked. I mean, my teeth hurt. Like, it was... It was bad. I was way, I was way over my head, but there was like a kernel of, of greatness, of happiness, of like, feels oh, good to yeah. feel that again. Yeah, it was good, and I was like, okay. And then I, you know, I went, I ended up running the race and got my butt kicked. Um, but, but I was hooked, and like, um, just to back up, that so, you know, that was September of 2018. Um, that was right at the beginning of a really tough time for me. So in June of 2018, my brother-in-law died. Uh, he was, uh, we were really close. He married my wife and I, um, and it was, it was sudden. It was very unexpected and very public. He was shot and killed. Um, so it was, so it was three months before and, uh, that happened three months before. Yeah. yeah. So undoubtedly, as I look back on it, but I had no clue at the time they were related that was that was a big part of uh, finding control, maybe, or finding something comfortable. Uh, not really sure the the kind of mental roots of it is probably a better way to think of it. But it was it it felt good. In fact, I was just listening last weekend to 
um, uh, a podcast interview with Kira D'Amato. Mm-hmm. And she went through a very different thing in her life. I, I don't know her. I never met her. But, I, but when she's talked about it, it resonated with me. Uh, she went through a time after her kids were born and they were still very little and her husband got sent overseas with the military and she was alone with them, which is tough. And, and running was something that came back to her at that point because it brought her some sense of comfort or, or whatever it was. And to me, it was the same thing. But I didn't realize it was associated with that grief. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really, really hard. I mean, I, I couldn't, I took over a month, maybe two months off work. Um, the only thing that got me through was my family because we were all going through it together and we have yeah. a really big family and we were all equally devastated. Um, so we got through it together. And then within my own little reference point of getting through it, running seemed to help me with that. Um, but then, you know, so that was September when I started running again. And then February, uh, my mom passed away the next February. So a few months after that, yeah, uh, Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2019. And she had a long battle with dementia. So it was very hard to lose her, but it was also for those who've been through that with people they love, there's a, there's a grace in, in, in leaving that behind. Um, and the whole time I was running, she was a runner. She took up running when I was born. So I grew up around with her, going to 5Ks and 10Ks in the 80s on the LA scene. And, and she very much identified as a runner. Um, and that was a big deal for her. And so she dragged me along. And um, so there's a, there's a thing with, with losing her and running that was powerful too. Kind of a full circle moment. Yeah, it was in a big way. Um, and so it just helped. I mean, I, I, there's a, a bunch of trips around the time she passed away and afterward down, back down to LA because uh, that's where she was. Um, and I'd go run the, the trails that she loved and, and all the, the routes that, that, that she, um, that were special to her. Um, and so that was special to me to, to be able to do that, um, sort of with her. Um, although she hadn't run those runs in probably 10 years, but it was, it was, they were hers and her circle of friends was still that same circle of friends from running. Um, so that was, you know, running got me through that as well. And it, it was like, it was brutal. I mean, I don't want to take this thing down the depression trail, but you know, it, my dad ended up passing away a year after that um, in May of 2020. And so this whole time getting back into, into running and, you know, it's, it's been a comfort for me and it's really helped me um, not deal with it because that's not how you deal with it. You don't deal with it by putting it away and, just, and doing other stuff, but um, it does help you work through stress it does um, give you a healthy outlet for whatever anxiety you might have. Um, and, it, and it really worked for me. Not to put words in your mouth, but I also think it gives you some sense of control. And you had alluded to this a little while ago, because all of these things that happened in your life, all of these people who you love dearly that you lost, it was out of your control. There was nothing that you could have done about any of those things. But this pursuit of running, however you chose to tackle it, was all yours. I mean, you could run as many days as you wanted to. You could run as hard as you wanted to. You could race again if you wanted to or not. And I, I mean, I've I've been through periods of similar grief in, in my own life. And I feel like that's something you can take for granted, that you have control of this thing until you've gone through instances where you know you've you've lost control and then you reframe your view of 
of what running can be to you and, and what it is. Absolutely. I know um, from listening to Morning Shakeout episodes, you talking about losing your mom yeah, and how sudden and unexpected that was. And um, I can't relate, but I can understand what that might have been like for you and, um, and how running might have helped with that for you. Um, and I'm glad you shared that because when you, when you did, um, or I should say when I heard it on the show, um, it, it, it helped me every time you hear something like that from somebody else, it helps them with either what they're going through or what they went through. So thank you for, for that. Well, I appreciate you acknowledging that. And, and it does. And I, I can only speak for myself, but you know, my mom died unexpectedly of a brain aneurysm at 50. And I just turned 40. That's only 10 years away. And and I think now, 14 years after she passed, I understand very intimately like how young that that is. And and I mean, I'm still 10 years away from that, but I think of it and and this isn't just in regard to running. I mean, this applies to many other areas of my life, but running is something that has long been important to me and something I still enjoy doing. And and I think of that and I'm like, man, this is like one thing I have control over. And like, I don't know how much time I have left or anyone has left. And it's like, I want to try and like enjoy this as much as possible. Like not even, I mean, yeah, I have competitive goals and things that I might want to do, but I'm like, I just want to make the most of this as, as possible. And that's sharing it with my friends. That might be time to myself, like, you know, out on the trail. It might be just like, you know, being at the track. And I think it's like having those, um, events happen in your life is kind of a point of reference. Definitely just like reframes your, your perspective on the pursuit itself. Yeah, it does. And, and it's funny cause we, you and I both keep using this word control, which is funny cause like it's, it's accurate, but, uh, but I'm not, nor have I ever, I would say been kind of a control freak person in mm-hmm. a lot of things in my life. Um, but it's just about as close of a word as I can think of for, for what, what, what I'm talking about, at least. Yeah. Um, although I guess the only place I am a control freak is in my running, so maybe that is true. <laughs> <laughs> there's something there. Yeah, I think that you're, there's, a, there's a stubbornness there for sure that yeah. got me through a lot of uh, – it didn't get me through. That, that stubbornness helped me become a far better athlete than, mm-hmm. than I probably would have been otherwise. Yeah. So was it 2019 after your mom passed away or 2020 when your dad passed away that it started to pick up momentum from a training and racing perspective where, you know, it was more than just jogging a few miles a few times a week. You were starting to get more consistent with it. You were thinking a little more intentionally about your workout. You started laying out a race schedule, that sort of thing. It was, yeah, it was toward the end of 2018, even before my mom passed away. Okay. But that really, um, I started training more in, in the spring of 19. I think I ran my first, aside from that corporate challenge disaster race, um, the first race was um, a, a local four-miler down in Los Gatos. And I want to say it was like April or May of that of 2019 mm-hmm. with, with West Valley uh, Track Club, which, as you mentioned, we're both members of now. A bunch of the guys who um, were my really closest friends, the guys I ran the most miles with in my life back in the old days, 
uh, were West Valley Masters guys. And so they saw that I was, I was training again. And it was like, hey, you want to come join? And mm-hmm. total no-brainer. Like, are you kidding me? Like, of course. They're good recruiters. They really, really are. Yeah. So um, so, so that made it really easy. And uh, I was going to do the workouts anyway because I was kind of enjoying it as, mm-hmm. as part of this whole process. I'm a process guy when it comes to running. Like, I like the workouts as much as I like the races. I just like to say, here's my goal. Here's how I'm going to get there. And then go do it. Um, and deal with all the bumps in the road. Um, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. And then go do it all over again. Yeah. That, that's cool. I, I like that. And so just being able to do that was, was, was a plus. Yeah. So you, you restart this process of becoming a competitive athlete again. You've had all of these, you know, we'll call them just events in your life that happened, you know, sort of leading up to and in conjunction with that, but you're also at a very different point of your life. You're in your forties. Now you have kids and a family and a regular stable job. Did that all in combination just change your perspective on the pursuit itself and how you approached it from a day-to-day basis? It did, um, in, in important ways because you're, you have, other priorities. That's what I meant. Yeah. yeah. And like you, you put everything within the context of that and figure out a way to make it work. Um, make it work appropriately. Like there, there, you know, you could, you could easily reshuffle those priorities in a very self-centered way. Um, but then again, that's part of the struggle of it. Like uh, anybody who's, who's got a, you know, is at this point in their life, or even if they're, they're younger and, and, and running is not their top priority. There's certain points when you have to juggle with that selfishness of I need to go do this thing now, um, even if it's um, asking the people around you to make a sacrifice of, of whatever the sacrifice might be. Maybe it's time, maybe mm-hmm. it's inconvenience, whatever it is. And there's there's times that that happens for me all the time. Um, but it doesn't mean that, that the priorities aren't set appropriately. And yeah. everybody struggles with that, yeah. I, I think. Otherwise, and if you're not aware of that, you're, you're, you're just totally not self-aware at all. Yeah. But it's always, it's always a struggle. Yeah. How's it been for your kids to see you on this pursuit of competitive running? Because when you were at your best in the marathon back in 2005, 2006, and even competing still through 2010, I don't think they were born. If they were, they were very, very young at that point. Yeah, they. My daughter was born in 2011, so it yeah. was after after all of that. Um, they don't they don't see me in that competitive running thing that like just something dad does. Yeah, it's just something I go I go do, and and they have their things they go do, and um, yeah, it's interesting how that'll how that might change. It's weird because you don't you can't see it through their eyes, right? You know what I mean. For them, it's just the way it's been at least for most of their lives. Mm-hmm. So so I, I don't really know how to answer that. I guess it, it, we'll see. Yeah. At what point did things start clicking again for you where you had a good race result and we're like, ah, all right, there's something still there. You started to just feel the momentum picking up again. I, You know, I think if I had to narrow it down to one point um, in the fall of 2019, I was with the, with the West Valley uh, Masters crew uh, the first cross country race I did um, was in Santa Rosa. It's a pretty hilly course, and um, I won the thing. And it hurt. It was it was a hard effort because we had some good guys racing against me, and I 
I was always a good downhill runner. I always could, I always could run real fast downhills in cross country. And so I used that to my advantage and, um, and I won the thing. And to me, it was like, Hey, like I'm, you know, I hadn't really run that many races. So it was all new to me. Mm -hmm. It was like, Hey, we can do this. And then, and then like two weeks later, I went to Golden Gate Park and, and was the third guy on our team. You know, our mutual friend, Jorge, uh, kicked everyone's butt that day. And, um, it sort of put it sort of put me in my place a little bit. It was like I had this great first race, and then it's kind of like the second race. Like, uh, we got a little work to do. And um, it was my teammate, so it wasn't like you know, it wasn't yeah. there was no sting to it. But it was definitely like a check, which was great. It was it was just what I needed. And then you that kind that, of set yeah. this whole season going in 2019. I was 42, I think, and this was pre-COVID, so they had national championships. It was in Pennsylvania. It was super cool. It was cold and rainy and muddy and. Um, it was great. I, I, I totally enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm interested in this because for me, having just turned 40 a couple months ago, I haven't even raced yet since I've become a master's runner, but I kind of feel like a freshman in college again. <laughs> like it feels like a, like a, a clean slate in some ways. And I'm like the young guy, the new guy. There are people such as yourself, um, the aforementioned Jorge. I mean, we've got Mark Ewan on, you know, our squad. I mean, there's Sergio Reyes who runs for the Aggies who are just like still just crushing it, like as, you know, as, as masters runners. But I'm kind of like wide eyed, um, in a way that I haven't been in like many years. Did you feel any of that when you got back into it and joined the West Valley squad and got into this whole masters racing scene? A hundred percent. Uh, because I hadn't run a race period in a long time, <laughs> in a long time. So there's a the whole process of like, I gotta go get my number. I gotta get the safety pins. Like just the littlest things and the biggest things, like everything in between, like, how does it feel like to run in a pack? Like you had to remember that dynamic of, that guy's going to go ahead a little bit right here. So I got to ease off or I'm going to crash into him there. Like it doesn't take long for me to have figured that out. And it's going to be different for you because you've been running and you've, you've done track races and stuff. Right. But, um, but the master's part is different because it's like, it's just got a different pace to the race. Um, most people are, and I would confirm this. It's like, it's, it's a little, it's a little slower off the gun, but but everybody's tougher and scrappier than they look like when you use like I remember being young watching the Masters race and they, they look like they were going slow and then then you're a master and you're in the Masters race and and those dudes are tough and scrappier than than they look or than you remember them looking. That's a good pro tip. <laughs> yeah, there it it gets it gets uh it gets super competitive in the best way. Yeah. Did you know early on when you got back into racing that eventually you would go back to the marathon, which is where you made your mark earlier in your career? Or is that something that transpired recently? Because you just ran your first marathon, I think, what, since 2009 or 10? Yeah. A couple months ago at Grandma's. Uh, yeah. I, it was my first, my last marathon before this was, was New York City 2009. Um, so whatever that is, 13 year break. Um, when I, when I started again in 2019, started racing again in 2019, uh, if you remember that marathon trials were in 2020 in Atlanta, I believe. It was like mm -hmm. January, February. And so I, I kind of kicked around the idea of like, um, hey, what if I could get a qualifier for that? And in hindsight, there's no way I was going to get a qualifier for that. It just I, wasn't enough time. Yeah, I mean, I was 
I was running like 35 miles a week. My long run was like 12 miles. Like I was thinking that like I am getting fitter and I'm still the same dude who could run fast before in the marathon. But that dude was running 140 plus miles a week and was, you know, 27 years old. And singularly focused on this one thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I was, I was, I want to give myself credit for being smart enough to not do the one or two races that it really was a slim. I would have had to go into Houston in January and then run the trials in February. It, it like, it was just a really bad idea. Poorly thought out, but I, but that planted the seed of like, okay, the next time around when the window opens, maybe we could go for it. Granted I'm older than I was then. Um, and so that was part, but then the pandemic happened. So it was like, then it was this whole other thing where everything got pushed back. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I always thought that that would be a cool goal. Because I love the trials. I mean, I ran it in 04. Um, the 08 one was actually in 07. Yep. And I qualified for 12. Um, but at that time, I wasn't running anymore. Um, and I loved it. I loved the whole concept of it. I loved the competitiveness up front, the, the purity of top three go, um, the lack of rabbits. I like that kind of racing. I like the fact that there's 150 guys, or in the women's race, women uh, in the middle and the back of the pack who that's a career highlight for them and everybody at home is watching and deeply cares about what they're doing that day. Yeah. That's their Olympics. Yeah. Everything about it is special. Um, and it should be. And so to, for me, it was like, okay, let's, that's a, that is a noble goal. It's a, it's a really, really friggin' hard goal for an old guy, for anybody. But in particularly if you're, you know, getting back into it, where, where I am at to get to 218 flat, which is what it is this time around, the, the standard, um, is going to take a lot of work and a lot of health, <laughs> mainly. What was grandma's like for you? It was great through about 15, 14, 15. I, I came through, I mean, first of all, I've never run with 100 plus people in a pack running the same pace with the same goal. Yeah. That was surreal. Um, there was a moment early in the race um, where I was with, there was actually kind of three little packs, kind of one was kind of where I was at the, the slowest of those three packs, right at um, the pace to hit the half at 69 minutes. So that's 218 flat pace. We were right on that. And there was another group like 50 yards ahead, another one a little bit ahead of that. But with my little subgroup, which is probably 40 or 50 guys, there was a moment when I went over to the left side of the road because there was some shade over there. Grandma starts kind of foresty, right? And the middle of the road was sunny, so um, the weather was cool, but I figured, old guy, you know, help I can get, I'm going to go over there. It was a tailwind, so headwind, you know, it didn't matter if you were with the pack or not. So I'm over there, and i just listening to 50, whatever it was, plus feet hitting the ground. And it, you know how it is when there's a lot of people, like, every now and then they'll get in sync. And then it'll be total, like, not in sync. And then every now and then they'll come back, at least part of it. And it, there was a minute or two there I had this really special little zone-out moment. Uh, and then I had to shake my ass back into gear because I was, you know, was like, you're still in a marathon trying to run to your limit. Yeah, you got to stay focused here. Yeah, so it was, I mean, it went fine. Through about 15, I was right on pace with this group. And then my hip flexor kind of went out on me and it was quick. It was like it, within five plus minutes, it went from I'm right on pace and feeling like I have a shot at this to I just control. ran 15 seconds to slower that last mile. And I started this next one. I'm not getting any better. And I can, my legs just not coming off the ground. So real quick, it was like, I could drop out of this. Everybody thinks about that. Um, but I don't want to drop out of this because this could be a cool experience. And logistically, you got to get your 
but back to Duluth, which is at that point, 11 miles straight ahead. Um, so I, I said, and I think this is one of the best decisions I've made in a long time. Let's just slow down a little bit to the point where this hip will allow you to go. Um, let's have some fun with it. The crowds start getting better as you get closer to town. And that's what I did. I ran, instead of running 516 pace, which is the trials pace, I ran um, like 545 pace, which wasn't easy, but it allowed me to, you know, I was high-fiving and waving to the crowd. I could stop and drink the little Powerade out of the cup, which was very uh, nice. <laughs> and um, I had a lot of fun. I was just enjoying it. Um, it got it got hard the last mile. The thing turned back into the wind, and I was, I had to, I was really suffering. But the, there's about 10 miles there where it was just... It was just pure fun. What did it feel like to come across that finish line 13 years later after everything you'd been through during that period? It was a big relief to be, to be done. As I mentioned, that last mile was really tough. So there's a, there a huge, like, my hands are on my knees, and I'm just really glad to be stopped, mm-hmm. to stop running. And then there was a grab-the-fence moment and cry for like a minute or two, which is not unfamiliar for me at the end of marathons. Not every marathon, but some of them, it's, it gets emotional. Yeah. Um, and particularly this one, because there was so much that had gone on the last five years. There was, you know, um, gratitude to, in particular, I remember thinking about my parents um, at, at that little moment. And um, and then it was just kind of looking around and appreciating it. It, it was marathons are cool. Like if you it, if you can be in a part of a of a legit marathon, whether you're volunteering competing, coaching, whatever it might be. And you're really in it. Like you're, you're on the course, you're, you're seeing the people, you're, you're feeling the sweat, like every, if you're part of it like that, it's an unbelievable experience. Um, and I, and I felt that hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't reiterate that enough. I think back to actually the last in-person podcast that I recorded this year with Tommy Ribs right after the Boston marathon. And I mean, he's traveled his own journey and, that marathon took him six and a half hours. It's three hours better than what he did in New York a few months prior to that. I mean, he's coming back from, you know, cancer. And he said, if you are losing hope in anything, losing hope in humanity, he's like, go watch a marathon. And he was speaking specifically about his experience there at Boston. But any legit marathon, as you just mentioned, you you go there, no matter what your role is, I don't know how you walk away from that not inspired to go do something special in your own life um, or feel good about yourself or just feel good about humanity in general. Absolutely. I mean, I, I remember hearing him say that on your, on your, pot, on your interview with him and um, that, that, that got stuck in my brain. It, it definitely did. And um, I can't wait to go out and do another one. I signed up for Chicago. Nice. Uh, which may be crazy because it's like a it's like twelve or thirteen week break. I, it's, it's too short of a break. Is what it, whatever it is, it's too short. But but why not? Like I, I want to run cross country. So Chicago's in October, and the, if you do the math on it, like the, your options get kind of limited. Well, you got two months till nationals after Chicago. Yeah. So that's October 9th. I think nationals and cross country is December tenth. If I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah. All I was thinking was how big like. What's the perfect balance between I need time to recover from grandmas and train again, but I need time to recover from whatever that race marathon is I'm going to do and then be ready for cross country again. Mm -hmm. And that was about the best solution I could come up with. Yeah. What was training for grandmas like? We had just talked about how your life circumstances are different. You have other 
priorities now, but I mean, I followed your training on Strava. You were putting in good work. It wasn't the 140, 160 mile weeks that you did when you were at your peak, but I think you were bagging like 90 plus mile weeks on some of your, you know, your highest weeks, which is still a lot of freaking running, especially when you've got many other things going on in your life. Yeah, it, it went well for the most part. Um, I had been through, during the pandemic, I'd put myself through a couple essentially marathon training cycles without running a marathon because mm-hmm. there wasn't one to run. I toyed with the idea of just doing one on my own. And I actually did one through about 15 miles and then it just wasn't working out. Just here in Alameda, at, 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 we have this old Navy base at the end of the island that I do most of my faster work at because there's not many cars, there's nobody around, and I can just do a two-mile loop over and over again. I do most of my tempos out there. And so I was just going to run... 13 loops like i was like all right that makes sense this is in like 2020 right so i'd been through a few cycles so i I was like okay i can do this cycle for grandmas but here's one thing that i learned that um if i could if i could if i could go back and tell younger me one thing um it would be this that like and this happened during the grandma cycle like i I hit like a, a period of time in may it was in May. I remember distinctly. It was like three or four weeks when I was um, overworked at work. I was, uh, which led to you know not enough sleep. I was still trying to train through it, and I kind of had a, a low swing where like the performance. I was my legs were hurting. I was getting little injuries. The workouts weren't there, and it lasted for a while. And I knew that the hard, you know, the, the work stuff at work work was going to fade, and it was going to get better. Um, and when it did, the training came back, but I understood at some point, not in the middle of that difficult period, the difficult three or four weeks, but toward the end of it, I understood that it would get better. And I allowed myself to kind of, if you think of the, the ups and downs of a training cycle, I allowed that down period to kind of play out without getting too upset with myself and then re-grabbed onto it as it kind of had the upswing. And that ended up being like about four weeks before grandma's. And what it reminded me of in a slightly different way was um, this last fall, cross-country nationals for the clubs uh, was in Florida. And uh, our team went down there. It was uh, no offense to the listeners in Florida, but apparently the pandemic didn't happen down there, even though it was really, really, really bad. So it was kind of a sketchy trip for a lot of us who were more uh, fearful of getting sick. And the, the, there's a big wave of COVID right before that. And then it kind of backed off right before the nationals. So we went down there and it was like, it was kind of a weird vibe, right? Cause it was, I was, at least for me, it was, we go down there, we have this race. It was, it turned out to be a race when we lost the championship by like two or three points. I can't remember what it was. I got second. Um, and it didn't, the guy who beat me smoked me, but I didn't feel like I had a very good race. And I was super pissed that I didn't have a good race and that the team didn't win because we thought for sure we were going to win. And um, the whole thing was just a little bit of a weird vibe from before the trip to, to losing the thing, which was weird isn't the right word, but it was disappointing. And afterward, I remember right after the race and that whole night, we were, you know, we enjoyed ourselves afterward like we should have, but I was pissed. Like I was really genuinely upset. And there's a thing in the running world. It's kind of this like Instagrammy thing where it's like you put your best face forward mm-hmm. and you don't kind of acknowledge the shit. And like, I, I distinctly remember after that race saying, I'm not going to do that. Like this sucks. 
and I'm not going to be the downer of the party and I'm not going to like, um, but I'm also not going to force myself to be happy about this. And I know myself, if I give myself, if I give me two or three days to stew, I'm going to pop, I'm an optimistic person. I'm going to pop back up and have the next goal and be raring and ready to go. But to force that raring and ready to go too early um, and not allow myself to kind of wallow in the disappointment of the race um, was not healthy. It didn't, it didn't allow that to sink in. I remember reading some stories about Phil Jackson, the basketball coach, mm-hmm. and he would do that with, with his players. He would, he would, and him, maybe even with himself, he would let them kind of suffer through it on their own. And for me, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm my own sort of coach in a sense in that scenario. And I just let myself go through the bad period and let it fully kind of play out, which was only a couple of days, but I didn't force it away into like, well, it was a great effort. We got second and whatever, but you know, it was still really fun. I, yeah, it was fun, but we came uh, here to do a thing and we didn't do the thing. Yeah. And like, it's okay to, to, to feel that way. And it's okay to like tell people that's how you feel. Cause if you don't tell people that's how you feel, then they, you know, if everybody did that, it would be okay to feel that way. And it is okay to feel that way. And nobody does it. So then people think it's not okay to feel that way. And it's, a, it's a, not an exact parallel to the pre-grandma's training, but there was a period when I felt pretty bad. And it was like, I said, okay, well, there's a way to get out of this. Just don't force it. And it worked out okay. It wasn't ideal. I would rather have not gone through that period, but I didn't force it. I let myself go through that mm-hmm. down and just let it kind of play out. Because when I was younger, I, would, I was like all in. I'm like, this sucks. We got we to gotta shift this right away and get back to the positive side. Yeah. Um, you so, wouldn't sit with it as long? No. I mean, I would, don't get me wrong. I would get super pissed about stuff, but, but I would kind of flush it out real quick. Yeah. So it's like finding that balance between not getting over it too quickly, but then also wallowing in it for you know weeks or months afterward it's like you just got to give yourself that chance to kind of sit with the disappointment sit with the discomfort learn something from it process it and then move forward yeah i mean it might be different for somebody who doesn't have the inclination if like i said for me if i just let it go naturally i'll be i'll be fine and happy and motivated and have a new goal in like two days yeah Maybe somebody else that's different, and it might they might sit on it for a month or two, which maybe that's not as healthy. I don't know. That's a mm-hmm. personal thing. But for me, that's how my, my brain works. And just to have a little bit better understanding of that, it just makes it more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. It's, it doesn't sound like it should make it more enjoyable. It sounds like it, you're sitting in it longer, but it does. Like It's a more natural process. It's less stressful. Yeah. And that's where I want to be at age 45 with my running and my racing because they're not all home runs like there's a lot of strikeouts in in this sport there's a lot of disappointing runs and you never know when they're gonna show up yeah do you self-coach yourself now for the most part yeah i um when it gets down to cross-country season i'll do the team workouts which are with our coach jack younger and he's really good at getting you to the nationals dialed in properly and and so i'll just as as we get into the that season, I'll just go with that. Yeah. Aside from not running the volume that you ran during your peak marathon years, because you're in your mid forties now, are there any other adjustments that you've made to your training or things around your training that have allowed you to continue to get as much as you can out of those workouts or recover from them better that were different fifteen years ago? 
couple things. So I've had this long kind of hip problem that I tried to, or I didn't try, did go get diagnosed. Um, it was like a year ago, I think. And since then, one of the, one of the um, um, results of that diagnosis was a suggestion to go start doing Pilates. Mm-hmm. So I did. Caitlin Smith is a, a runner in the mm-hmm. Bay Area. She's got a, a Pilates studio. So I, I go to her. I've been, been going for about a year now. Um, and that's been a big help in, for, in a number of ways. Um, my, I have a friend I used to work with who said, this is when I wasn't running. He said, every guy over 40 should do Pilates, period. He said, my trainer told me that. And I didn't believe him. And I started doing it. And, it's, and I, I am completely of that belief. Like It is fabulous because you are... Uh, anybody who's kind of in the Western lifestyle of yeah. you end up sitting a lot, you end up, and, and if you're an athlete, it's even worse because if you're an athlete younger, you've overstressed certain muscles and just kind of balance that out with an emphasis on strength in the core in a unique way. Can't recommend it highly enough. It, you know, it's funny to hear you say that. I read an interview with Bill Rogers years ago before maybe Pilates was even a thing, certainly before it was like popular in our culture. And someone asked him a, a similar question, and he said, when I hit my master's years, I would have started doing more core work and weight training, and he didn't. And now that he's in his 70s, he's feeling the the effects of that. So I'm going to take that to heart as someone who just turned 40. My wife gets on me all the time for not doing enough strength stuff, but trying to make it a more regular part of my routine, because I do think it's going to help me to handle the training a bit better, but also just like what we're all searching for is just like long-term health and um, being able to do the things that we enjoy doing for as long as we can. Absolutely. It's about like, at some point you start, you have to start thinking like, what do I want to be able to do when I'm 70 Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and reverse engineer that back to to today. It was funny. You were asking a minute ago about, um, about training now. But, you know, one other thing, too, is, like, that I like being able to be my own coach is that, like, trying new stuff. Like, you put a thing in one of your email notes about um, the Norwegian training system. Yeah. And Marius Bakken wrote something. And I used to go to that guy's website back in, like, Same. That's what I That's what I wrote in the newsletter. Yeah. yeah we used to, he was, like, he was an amazing resource. So, like, it, for those who hadn't read that, just to briefly describe what it was, it was it was a heavy emphasis on threshold training. They used the blood lactate meters. Um, to me, that's a little cumbersome, not having a coach on a bike next to me with that device. Yeah, pricking your finger every well, it's few It's threshold, minutes. basically. You yeah. can figure it out. Like, yeah. it's, it's not that hard to figure out. Close enough is probably good enough, although maybe Marius would disagree. Um, so, But it was double day. And there was a very specific way to set that up. And so I tried that this last training cycle. I remember seeing this in your And strata. I did it a bunch of times. Um, it, is, it is a very logistically complicated deal to do double days, period. But two hard workouts, too. It, I, wouldn't, I'm, I might not go back and do it. The fitness worked. It was great for fitness, but it's a lot. It's a lot to stomach for somebody who's working as a family. Yeah, yeah. but but just just trying stuff like that. Like, that sounds pretty cool. Like let's yeah. go try that like a you know seven eight nine times and see if it works. And it did. It was great. It got me fitter for sure. Yeah, but it was it was yeah. Like the logistics tough. <laughs> yeah. Are there elements of your training from your late twenties? early thirties that, you know, worked really well for you that as you pursue your goals now, you're like, all right, I know that if I want to run a good marathon, I've got to do, you know, X, Y, and Z things in order to achieve that. 
Yeah, there's there's two things that come to mind. One is um, I was lucky enough in 2004 to have Jack Daniels show up in Palo Alto and be my coach. He was there for difficult reasons because his wife was undergoing treatment for cancer. But he was in Palo Alto when I was on the Nike farm team and just about to transition to the marathon. It wasn't 2000. It was earlier than that. It was like 02 or 03. And, and he, you know, Coach Gags and, and Vinland Anna were there. And, um, and then Jack was there. And I was starting to do marathons. I was like, I'm going to do my first marathon. And it's like this amazing coach was there to write programs for us. And so that, he was always my coach during those years. So if I go back now and it's like, well, how do I want to structure it? That's where I start with like the way he thinks about threshold and pace, interval pace, marathon pace, the way he sets up the rests and the workouts. To me, that's always the central reference point of the whole thing. And then um, when you, like in his books, for instance, like a lot of the stuff he put in, like the second edition of his book was stuff he was trying out with Magda and I during that period where we'd go to him and say, here's the stuff you gave us. You know, it was great, but one great example of Totally Concrete was um, after like 20 miles in a marathon, after my first couple ones, I remember in the Olympic trials in particular in 2004, um, I had this issue where like the pace would change a little bit. Somebody would put a surge on and I couldn't hold it. Even though they would slow down a mile later, that gap would form and I couldn't, then I'd have to force myself to rebridge the gap, which often didn't happen. So I went to Jack and I said, you know, is there, how can we, how can we deal with this? And so he started putting in, we do these long blocks of marathon pace with surges at various points, which weren't in the, in, in the earlier edition. He came up with that um, and tested it on us. It was, it was incredibly hard to do, but, but it helped. It helped a lot with, with my performance, I thought. Um, and so Jack's stuff is always kind of a central reference point. And then how, like putting it all together, um, I don't know why this came to mind right now, but there's a reverse engineering kind of component to it also where you say, this is what I, like you said a minute ago, you want to run this pace. How do you, what should you be, you be able to do four weeks or eight weeks ahead of time that would then suggest that you could do that on race day. Um, I heard an interview with, with Pete Julian, uh, yep. coach uh, extraordinaire now, uh, former training partner on the farm team. He was not a farm team official member because he was sponsored by Adidas, but he was there every day. And, um, one of my favorite people I ever trained with. Um, and I remember in this interview he did a couple of years ago talking about a lot of his training is sort of like that reverse engineering. He, maybe he was just saying it offhand and maybe that's not true. But for me, it, it registered. It was with his athletes. It's I need to be able to run a 330, 1500 at this meet or whatever time. What, what, what should that suggest that I'm able to do now three months ahead of time? Or how do I, um, what, are the, what are the signposts that I need to have? at different points to suggest that that might be doable. Yeah. Um, rather than just doing the forward part, which is um, I'm, I'm going to keep improving and then figure out on race day what I can run. If you, if you have the parameters set properly and you're confident in your health and all these other things, you can do it the other way. Yeah. It's a little trickier, but you can do it. On the other end of the spectrum, are there any things that you did 15 or so years ago that you just don't, do now. I mean, mileage seems to be one of the obvious ones. You just don't run quite as many miles as you did when you were at your peak. But are there any other elements of training that you're just like, yeah, I don't have time for that, or no, that's just not important at this point of my life? I think everything's just scaled back in, in, in scope. Yeah. Um, it's all kind of the same stuff. I mean, there's only so many things you can do, right? right. I had, I had this, this, this trick, this hack, this shortcut that I figured out 
um, probably like 2003 or something like that, to, to, set, to set the time frame. Um, I, I joined the Nike farm team in 2001 in track season. Right before that, I spent six weeks training in Kenya on a uh, trip on my own that was, that was totally insane. And I was training with like these total hitter like- We're going to talk about that. And so I, I was like, okay, I, I knew I could train hard. And then I saw what really hard training was. Even if you adjust for the fact those guys were better than me, they would train hard. And then I joined the farm team and I was running every day in this little subgroup with um, Brad and Brent Hauser, Matt Lane, who was fourth at the Olympic trials a few times, Pete Julian, a bunch of other guys in that group. And Vin was coaching us for about a year and a half. And every day we ran hard. Um, workout days were hard. Even the easy runs for the most part were pretty hard. Um, and it was some of the most, I, I really enjoyed it. Like I, I got I super fit. I didn't race that well though, but I got super fit. And I had this moment in 03-ish, it was after that when I started training with Jack, where I said to myself, um, maybe we should like just dial back the pace on these easy runs. Like Jack's workouts are really hard um, and they're, they're bulky. And I, I knew personally that running a lot of miles made me faster. I was always a high mileage guy. But um, there was this thing where I could run slower. Like for me, that meant at that time about seven minutes a mile. Um, for everyone, that's different. For some people, slow, conversational, very chill pace might be nine minutes a mile, whatever it is. For me, it was, it was seven instead of what I would otherwise be running, which would be like six mm-hmm. or below that. Um, but I could go a lot further. So for me, the trade-off was if I go slower, I can go further. I can get more mileage in that um, bridges me up to a higher level of personal fitness. Um, and the trade-off is when you run slow, your form gets sloppy and you're less efficient. So to adjust for that, I, I, I asked Jack Daniels and he said, you know, do 150s. He, for tw- he, he likes 20 second, instead of just strides, he likes 20 second strides. And for me, 20 seconds was like 150 yards on a track. So almost every day I do six by 150 at the end of my super slow ass 13 mile run. Um, and at the end of the week, I look down and it's, you know, you just did 140, 150 mile week with two really good workouts, a lot of really slow miles, and then a bunch of strides. And to me, if I were to run fast at that faster pace for that amount of volume, disaster. Um, and, and I put those numbers out there, not as, as they're prescriptive, they're, they're referential to where I was at that moment in my life. Yeah. But, but the slower pace was, was like a hack that if I, it, it, it allowed me to bridge up and be a much more competitive runner. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that's one of the biggest takeaways for any runner listening to this. This is something I encounter all the time, coaching age groupers, and I'm trying to help them bring their mileage up. And they're used to running their set pace on their easy day, whatever it is for them, 7.30, 8.30, nine minutes a mile. But we're bringing their volume up and they're trying to maintain what they think of as their, their easy pace. And as you just mentioned, that's harder to do when you're running more miles because of cumulative fatigue. You're not, not actually going to recover from the workouts at that time. It's just like, slow the heck down, whatever that means for you. You want to increase your mileage, great. You can do that. Slow the heck down. And then the other part of that is slowing down is not an excuse for being sloppy. So I think even when you're running that slower pace, you got to be careful not to just be slogging along and, you know, setting yourself up for injury that way, but doing regular strides. Because that's the other thing with age group athletes that I hear all the time, like verbatim quote, 
fuck the strides, Mario. <laughs> that'll be that'll be like in someone's training log. Uh, shout out to Rich Allen, who was the first person to ever tell me that. Um, but I'm like, no, they're important. Um, like they're they're annoying. Yes, like they could be really annoying, if, especially if you have to stop and do them at uh, after your run. But put them into the end of your run where you just do like a little bit of turnover because that is just going to help keep things engaged properly. But slowing down is going to allow you to run more miles than you thought you could previously. But that's a hard hurdle for a lot of people to get over. It is. It's really, it's really tough. I'll tell you what initiated it was I, I, I had a heart rate monitor that I hadn't worn since high school and I put it on for whatever reason um, during one of those early years, like 0203 when I was running farm team, we did cross country nationals. I was training for the marathon and I, it, I didn't know much about heart rate training, but I knew my heart rate shouldn't be that high. And um, especially on the easy runs. And it took like a couple of months to like it was like tuning the piano, like getting it yeah. set where it was like, okay, that's actually an easy run. And then it kind of came back the other direction where it would actually, I could speed up a little bit on the easy runs. Not, you know, it, it was just finding the right point. And then I ditched the hurry monitor because it was annoying. But, uh, but I, but I, I knew more intuitively that right and, effort. Yeah. Like, like my good friend, Nate Bowen, uh, who's one of our teammates now, uh, we ran a bajillion miles through the, the, the long shady streets of Atherton, California, which was, you know, next to Palo Alto and in Woodside and the trails and through downtown Palo Alto. Cause nobody else on the farm team would want to run with us cause we'd go so slow, but you know, we'd just go out there and meander through and you know, whatever, an hour 20 later, you're done. Now, you know, we had the time in our day to do that and we weren't stressed in any way of having to finish up at a certain time. Now, when I go out and run, I'm like, okay, I got to be back for whatever it is in such amount of time. And so I'm more conscientious. And that tends to force, not force me to pick up the pace. I pick up the pace because that's in my brain. And maybe I need to do a little better job of turning that switch down. Yeah. What's it like in your mid forties running your first marathon in 13 years, having been away from your last go at that distance for so long to race in super shoes. And I mean, you'd run some half marathons before that, but that technology was not around in 2009. I mean, you were running in paper thin slippers, light as possible was kind of the, the way of the day for the marathon. And now I mean, you're, you're older, you have a lot of lifetime miles on your body, but there's this new technology out there that is drastically different from what existed 13 years ago and has obviously just changed the game on, on so many levels. And I think you're like an interesting use case being as, as good as you are, but having been away from the sport for a long period of time and just kind of like skip this entire footwear evolution. Yeah, it, it was, it's wild. You're 100% right. Like my, my racing flat reference points were these like, I had these like bright cherry red Asics I remember racers that. that I loved and they were hard as a rock. Like I deliberately train, I, I, there's this big hill at Coyote Point in Burlingame, sticks out into the bay. Mm-hmm. And I'd sprint up it, do a bunch of like bounding and drills at the parking lot at the top, like on pavement, I do bounding all to toughen my quads and feet up for Boston Hills. Like I do these circuits that would last like 40 minutes. It was torture. It worked great for, for that purpose. Cause you had these, you know, you're, you're running on these tiny Slippers. little shoes. Yeah. Um, 
And then, like you said, fast forward now, and it's like I come back in the sport, and everybody's got these carbon shoes. Which first, of all, when I first heard about them, I'm like, who the hell would want to run on carbon? Wouldn't that like break your foot? I didn't know they're soft. And when I got my first pair, it was like a to- it was like a totally different experience. It's like um, it's like this. It's like seeing the same thing in a completely different way. Um, it, it, it's kind of the, you know you're still running, but it was like so surreal um to experience it and then you look down at the watch and you're like oh, oh that was pretty fast yeah <laughs> so but but now it's like it's just the way it is i think des linden had a great quote saying like this is just this is just the name of the game now so you manage yourself to adapt to it you don't fight it i mean you can fight it if you want but it's like this is just the way it is and everybody's using them and the time shifted clearly they everybody's time shifted or i shouldn't say everybody's like the the the, the median time shifted faster mm-hmm. so you get used to it and like so i've gotten used to it i'll wear them in my workouts and um they're cool i mean it's a different it's a definitely a different deal yeah it's a different deal it's a different sensation and i mean for me i mean i've kept running all the way through but as as i've gotten older here and have like you know, tens of thousands of miles on my body. I've I've noticed like for for those of us who are a little bit older and have like that higher number on the o- odometer, it's it's like giving you some new life in some ways because you're like, oh well, you know, I still can race and run hard, but I'm not as beat up afterward. Um, and you know, you can recover a little bit faster from key efforts, which again, like you've been at it for a long time. I mean, recovery is like so key. It's, it's such the name of the game. You can't get away with as much as you did when, when you were younger. And I've just like really noticed that difference just having, um, you know, just having been in the sport for like such a long time. So I'm like, I'm all for it. Um, and, and I do think you have to get to a point where you also just accept like, all right, this is, this is the game now. Like this is just where the, the sport is, but runners by and large are such purists that it's, it's hard for some people to, to move on. Yeah, it, it, it is. I, I have friends in that camp, but um, you're right. The recovery is, is definitely better. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it, it, and, and to be honest with you, when I first put them on, it felt really weird. And now even thinking back, like the actual what felt weird about it, there was like a height thing. There was like a roll forward on the forefoot thing. I don't even notice that. You get over it quick. Yeah, yeah. really quick. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, all, I'm on board. Yeah. Last, last bit. On that, I ran, it was even pre-Super Shoes, but I ran the 2015 Boston Marathon in a pair of Hoka Cliftons, which are not a racing flat, but are a thickly cushioned shoe. But what was crazy about that original version of the, the Clifton, it might have been Clifton 2, is how light it was for as much cushion as they packed in the shoe. And I was really worried, because I'd run Boston before, about just getting the crap beat out of me. And... I wore those in that race and I had done more downhill training, but I remember coming out of it being like, oh, I'm not nearly as destroyed as I was when I last did this race a few years prior. And I mean, that's held true for me in every marathon that I, that I've run since then. And, and like, I, for one, I'm like, 
happy to not be like at least just like physically annihilated after um, after a marathon as much as I was back in you know oh seven oh eight when I ran my first ones. And you know what? If that keeps more people in the sport too, that's that, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. Is like I think it can actually you know used properly, and and I encourage this with my athletes that I coach sparingly because then people become over reliant on them. They want to run every run in them because they feel so good. And you're like, well, you can't do that either. That's not good for you. Yeah, you'd be broke too. Uh, yeah, you'll, yeah, and you will be broke because it'll last you like three weeks at that point. Um, but it's it's like it can just help extend your career and allow you to train at a higher level. Yeah, uh, yeah, 100% true. And it's amazing that people who had at the height of their careers made that switch mm-hmm. because it probably wasn't that easy. Yeah. You mentioned earlier in this conversation how for like the eight or nine years that you weren't training and racing you didn't really pay any attention to the sport you'll catch the olympics or you know you were aware of what happened at boston when the bombings happened in 13 and med one and 14 but since getting back into it in 18 have you paid closer attention to the sport you listen to my podcast so i mean that's one you know point of entry for you but are you paying attention to race results a little bit more more interested in like what's happening at the professional level yeah a little bit not as much as i was before for sure but mm-hmm. a lot of that's just attention span like mm-hmm. i just got too much going on to 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 spend uh you know time on let's run or whatever to figure out what's going on but i i do i do get um you know we we watch the world champs every night with the kids and that was cool as much as we could i mean the the way they aired it was disaster don't get me started on that but uh, i ended up watching the canadian broadcast channel i think on the recommendation of john markell on our uh west valley thread i just put my vpn to toronto and they had just one consistent feed the entire time it made the viewing so much easier should have done that totally should have done that um but yeah no it's it's great to watch and and um my nephew is running cross country in high school and he made the state meet in California. So I went down last fall to watch that. So I got to watch him run, which was thrilling. And I got to watch the Newbury Park kids race, which was like thrilling too. So I'm, I'm all on board with, with that whole deal that's going on. I think it's amazing. Um, but yeah, not, not to the same degree. I guess I would like to be more, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a commitment. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's, there's so much going on, too. And, I mean, you just think about, like, the, the era. I mean, 2010 does not seem that long ago, but it was 12 years ago. And just how much has evolved over that time with social media, with just the Internet in general and just accessibility to, like, what you you could follow. It's, like, it really is, like, just an endless stream. And, like, you could be the biggest fan of the sport. And, like, it's unless you're up 24 hours a day, it's, like, impossible to keep up with it all. Yeah, and like, and then there's stuff too where like people you, like people I ran with who are like now coaches or doing different things, and it's like their career changed, and they're like, it, like for instance, I was listening to your interview with Mike Smith, mm-hmm. who I ran with and Flagstaff a lot, and I'd stay in the same house with him, and it was this runner Mike Smith, not NCAA champion coach, badass Mike Smith. I mean, he was badass back then, but as a runner, not a coach, yeah. um, and just catching up with people way later where like it's like oh my god that guy's doing that like yeah. oh wow that's so cool and then and then you have to you have to backfill in like what happened in their deal for the last 10 years how did mm-hmm. they get to that point and it's fascinating um because frankly like my because my world was so running focused for a while and a lot of my close friends were in that world and then you don't kind of rip that away but it wasn't there i was i had other side 
young kids in the house. I had uh, a, a crazy job, like all this other stuff, and I wasn't in that world. You you lose touch with some of those people, and even if not only lose touch with them, but you don't know really what they're up to. There's losing mm-hmm. touch personally, and there's losing touch with just being involved in the sport and knowing the, the things they're doing. And then to reconnect with them um, is really special, um, whether it be personally or just just from reading or listening to stuff about them. So I, I'm totally in on that. That's that's really fun. Before we got on the mics to record this conversation, you mentioned to me your podcast that you're working on and is going to be released sometime here, hopefully soon. Can you tell me more about it? Yeah. So when, uh, if you back up about a year ago, um, an old friend of mine, Kevin Allen, um, who has a, a, a background in, in journalism and as a reporter um, and a runner, uh, he reached out to me out of the blue um to talk about his his son's running and ask for a little advice and so we you know picked up the phone i called him talked about that and i told him about my getting back into running and about the um wanting to do the olympic trials and that whole pursuit and he was like all he was like that's super fascinating we should do something with this and we didn't really know what shape that would take and so we just started doing zoom chats um, he's based in Kansas City area, so it was, you know it's a Zoom deal, and we ended up having you know a year's worth of me going through this process, just chats on Zoom, and he's putting it together. It's a different format of a podcast than what we're doing right here. It's not an interview thing. It's it's an edited narrative sort of put together this um, process that I'm going through up through grandmas, and then we're going to keep going, uh, uh, hopefully to the point when I get this trial standard. But um, I think people, if I could get anything out of it, it's going to be twofold. One is it's going to help people who are, um, who are wanting to be involved in the sport and challenge themselves feel like there's a lot of different ways they can do that. And whatever way they happen to be doing it, it is okay. Because the way I'm doing it now is much different than before, and, and it's, but it's equally valid and good. And the other part too is is people that have gone through challenging times, like I did, mm-hmm. and like you did, and like everyone does. Um, you know, h- how do you how do you deal with that in kind of a positive way, with running in the background as part of that? But um, but just understanding, like I said, like we talked about earlier, just talking about stuff like that and understanding that other people go through things like that um, hopefully makes it easier for everyone to have that as part of their their life story. What was it like for you to talk about these things with Kevin over Zoom? Uh, Some of it was easy. Some of it was was really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, But talking about it, uh, any of those things has gotten a little bit easier over time. Um, and, and, um, as, as you would expect, you get a little further away from things, right. um, and you've talked about it enough times, it gets a little bit easier, but it's, it's definitely not easy. Um, just a little bit easier, but it, but, um, but just sharing the story and being, being real about it, the ups and downs and, um, but mostly the ups, I mean, it's, it's, it shouldn't be a, it has it has a, a a sad component to it, but it's it's full of joy and, and ambition and doing things you love with with people you enjoy spending time with. Yeah, I, I mean, I love that. I mean, and I I don't think you can have you can't have joy. You can't know joy without having gone through sadness. I mean, they don't 
exist independently of each other in in my own experience anyway i mean i've I've never known anything that's just like joyful to stand alone. I can only appreciate that because of you know some period of of sadness that maybe not directly related to it um but has given me that perspective so i'm I'm excited to listen to it um but also like just having had this conversation with you and thinking about what I'm trying to do with this podcast and it's like to show people what's possible for themselves, I say through the lens of, of running. And as you just said, running can be in the background, but I do think, you know, it, it's really fascinating for me to just hear how your relationship to it has evolved, like, you know, over the, the course of your life, like how you are now in your, in your mid forties and you've got that competitive fire again to see what's possible for yourself after having been away from the sport for a long time. And just being like, you know, a lot of us are, I just did a very different, point in in life like i think about when i was out of college and i moved out to oregon like i didn't have a family i didn't have a like i worked a lot of odd jobs as well i was nowhere near your level but i had like you know this pursuit and i was very like singularly minded singular singularly focused on it um and now i'm like i'm not 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 even close but it's still something like i love to do and i'm still like really curious about like what's possible and when i hear stories such as your own or other people who've had their own version of that like i personally find it like super inspiring and now like i mean i don't love the marathon but i'm like oh I'm like, it'd be fun to maybe just jump on like Peter's coattails and see if I could, you know, see if maybe I can qualify for a marathon trials, like, you know, in my forties, like, why not? Um, and maybe I can't and that's okay too. Um, but it's like just hearing you, like hearing you talk, having not even listened to any episode of, of the podcast, like that's just the feeling I got from this conversation. So I'm like, now I'm like eagerly anticipating this series. Cause I'm like, all right, well that's right up my alley. And I know for a lot of my listeners as well, having done this now for almost five years, I think it'll be up theirs as well. Thanks. Yeah. I, I, I hope people like it. We're going to call it running back the clock, which, uh, hopefully Love has it. multiple meanings. We'll, we'll, we'll figure that out in a few months. We'll see how Chicago goes, but mm-hmm. I'm all for you going for the marathon trials. <laughs> It's, uh, and, and, but you know, if it's not that it'll be something else because it's all just finding the, the, the thing that's, and you know what too, Mario, like, um, I, I just thinking back to like last fall and, and running a bunch of different races, sometimes like the, the gems are, are the unexpected ones. Like the two races that were the real highlights for me last year were just like ones that I wasn't even that fired up before. It was just like, oh, I'm going to go do this thing this weekend. And they turned out to be so memorable, mm-hmm. um, and and they and I know they're memorable for me, but they also resonated with the people that were around me because they knew they, they kind of watched the race. There was a saga to it; like it yeah. was just it was just so much fun. It's painful, but but which races so much, were those? So the one uh, we talked about this once before was was the um, uh, the John Lawson race in Marin, which is a local cross country race, and I ran I doubled. I ran the Masters race. And there weren't a, uh, some of the guys who were the most competitive masters guys weren't there, so I won that one. Um, and I, I I ran hard, but it was like a hard tempo effort. And then I was double back in the open race, like whatever, like an hour later. And that was not going to be a hard tempo effort. Like that was going to be me like scraping and clawing. And you know they went out like super fast, and I, I fought my way back to like eighth or ninth place by the end. And it was really really hard, but it was super fun. Um, loved it. And then the PA Champs, which is the local association yep. champs in Golden Gate Park, which is uh, – they made us run five miles, which is silly. We should have done six, but that's a separate story. We did five – we did the five-mile course, and Sergio Reyes, who you, you mentioned, is a fabulous runner, a guy I've run against my whole life. Um, 
and he just turned 40 and he took it out hard and now he's back. And I, I kind of, I was tired. Like I had done um, that Clarksburg half when we, um, when we first met, met yeah. and that was not that long ago. It was like a week or two before. So I was still kind of banged up. Sergio was there too at the half. So we were both a little banged up, but, but um, I, I, I was not like very keyed up for that championship race. And he took a big lead and I kind of slow, I didn't panic. I just kind of slowly chipped away. And it occurred to me after a couple of miles that, hey, maybe I can bring him back. And it happened very slowly over the five miles, a little bit closer, a little bit closer. And with a mile to go, I was pulled even with him. And that was, maybe it was less than a mile, but that was right kind of when we went by the crowd, by the finish line, we had to do one more loop around the polo field. And everybody was like, I was at that point, I was kind of, um, in the beginning, I was so far behind that I was not checked out, but not checked in. And midway through, I was checked in, and with like a K to go, I was fully on it. You were on it. Like yeah. at the moments that you don't have a lot in your racing when you're on it, like all the way ready to go. And um, he was too, like as far as I could tell. And then we had that last lap, and it came down to a sprint. And it was one of those elongated sprints where you, you, you get somebody, and then they, and then you realize that you are going extremely hard, and they're coming back. And it's like, oh shit, do I have like another gear? Do I have sixth gear? Like I, I'm 40, 44 at that time. I don't think I got another gear, but I found one. Yeah. And, and, um, I just got him by a little bit and it was really memorable and, um, probably not as memorable for him, but you know, this is one of the things, um, as you get older and I realized this when I was younger, but more so now, like, and Sergio is a great example of this. He's, he's a super competitive guy, um, as am I. Um, he's a fantastic human being. Um, when we get along great off the race course. Um, and I love the fact that when we go to the starting line that, um, I can look at him in the eye or in the middle of a race or whatever, and know that he doesn't care how well we get along off the track. He wants to kick my ass. And, and I'm sure he understands the same thing about me. It all the cards are on the table. And it's okay. It's okay to be competitive in that sense. It's not cool to be competitive in that sense in so many other parts of your life um, because it's, you'd be an asshole in a lot of situations. But in that framework, it's okay and it's great to have that. Um, it's great to have that in your life and to have people in your life who you have that very unique relationship with. And Sergio's not the only one. There's a lot of guys I can right. say that about. Yeah, but... Um, but I really appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, you got to be able to turn it on and, and turn it off. And I think that's like, you know, whether it was when I first got into the sport in high school, through college or anything I've done since then, um, regardless of like how, how fast I've run or, or what I've achieved, it's like the, it's, it's those moments that you just described that you, you remember. I mean, you didn't mention one split. You didn't mention time. It was just like this moment where the two of you were just like, you know, he's ahead you're behind you pull a little bit closer and then you're you're in it and it's like that's that's what you'll remember is just like pulling up on him and um how you felt coming around the polo fields that time and and i i hear you describe that and i think about myself and we talked about 
before getting on the mics here, how I ran track earlier this year for the first time in 16 years. Um, I say I'd like to join you for the marathon, but again, like I, I don't love the marathon. I do love the track and cross country, but I hadn't raced on the track since 2006. And I got spikes. I, I don't even know where my old ones are, but the new ones are way better anyway. So I'm just going to, I'm going to wear those. But I ran two track beats earlier this year. And maybe I needed that separation from it because for the longest time, like, well, why am I going to step on the track if I can't? run faster than I did in 2003. Like, there's no point. And now it's like, that wasn't even a concern of mine. Like, I just want to go out there and like, see what's possible at, at this point in my life. And as I was describing to you before we got on, like just those, you know, it felt very familiar, but it felt very foreign. And everything about the experience, like I, I can feel it right now as I describe it. Like, it's just like very, very visceral. And I think that's what you know, is what makes this sport beautiful. And what I hope people listening to this take away for, for themselves, no matter where they are at in their journey, is that they they seek those moments. And, you know, they really hold on to those memories. It's not about what your PR is or where you placed here. It's just like, you know, what you got out of it and, you know, how it made you feel. Yeah, and they sneak up on you. Yeah. You 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 have to go put yourself out there and into experiences, um, not expecting those moments because you never know when they're going to arrive. Mm-hmm. But you got to you got to you got to you got to sign up for the race. You got to put yourself out there, um, and maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. There are plenty of times when it didn't. But but um, I trade all of those for the good ones. Yeah, to take a, a bit of a pivot here. You mentioned it a little while ago, and this is something I want to talk to you about. You mentioned how in the early 2000s, I think it was right after you graduated from college, you went to Kenya for a period in time. And I remember reading about this over the years, but I, I want to hear about that experience from you. Like, How did you get to Kenya as a, what, 21, 22-year-old? How long were you there? And like, just tell me all about that experience. I'm really fascinated. Yeah, th- this is this is crazy. When I think back on it. It's like, like, how did I have the balls to go do that? Like, so I I graduated from Cal in 2000. I was on the five year plan. So May of 2000, I graduate. Um, and then uh, it was it was January or maybe late December of that year. So late December of 2000. Um, I, I had wanted to, I wanted to be a professional runner. I knew I had to get a lot better than I was to reach the goals that I wanted to reach. And I'm looking around the U S at that time. And it was not a very, it was not a very successful professional running scene. It was kind of the low point of mm-hmm. American running in the distances. Kenya, not a problem. They were doing great. So I thought, well, what can I learn from these guys? And at, in college, I had this great book, uh, Train Hard, Win Easy. Toby Tanzer. Yes. It, I mean, it was dog-eared. Um, so I thought, well, let's do, let, maybe we could go to Kenya and learn some things. And, I, you know, I was. this is the kind of things you can do when you're young. You can do them when you're older, too, but it's a little bit more complicated. So I... Um, I wrote, how did, I, how did this work out? I wrote to David Monty, who I didn't know, who was um, with um, New York Road Runners ostensibly. And um, I don't even know why I decided to reach out to David, but I love David. I had great friends with him later when I was running marathons. But yeah, he one put of the best in, guys in the sport. Yeah, he ends up like somehow putting me in contact with Toby Tanzer, um, 
which was totally random because I had, you know, the, the, his Literally book. wrote the book yeah. on Kenyan training. And he, he tells me that I should go to Eldoret, which is great because I had Eldoret. It was my favorite spikes of all time. So I thought, oh, let's go to Eldoret. Um, and I should go to a restaurant called The Sizzler. No joke. Like, like just like The Sizzler here, but that was the name of it. And if I went around there, I could ask around and find the group that Patrick Sang was coaching, who was a multiple-time silver medalist, Olympics and world champs in the steeplechase, had a big training group. Best known as Elliot Kipchoge's coach now. Yes. And then I should, that, that was my in. That was it. That was, all, that was all I had. So I thought, well, let's just go. So I, um, my uncle through work had like a million frequent flyer miles. And back then you could really easily gift them. So he gave me the miles. I got the ticket to, to, uh, to Nairobi and then a, a flight. I got advice from him. Oh, the other advice was don't take a bus or anything else to Eldra. Take a plane because it's too dangerous. So I did that. I got off, exited the airport. You know, a, a third world airport's insane when you get out and everybody wants to give you a ride. So I I just got in a taxi and went to this hotel, which I think I had pre, pre-figured out there was a hotel called The Wagon Wheel. And Eldoret was like a dirt road town at that point. And I, it was a super sketchy hotel. I was, I was pretty much the only white person in town, as far as I could tell. It's a, it's a small city, um, Eldoret, or at least it was then. And I just I got this hotel room. I was super nervous and very, very much like looking over my shoulder every moment, thinking mm-hmm. I was going to get mugged or something, which in hindsight was probably not accurate, but also not un- unrealistic. Did you show up with just a backpack and a carry-on or what did you have yep. on you? This is pre-roller bags. I don't remember what I, but yeah, that was basically it. It was, it was, it was batshit crazy, Mario. Like, it, like, I don't know what my parents, they must've been dying. <laughs> Um, no cell phone, nothing, nothing. And it was like six weeks, like book, book the return ticket. And so I, I, I don't know if it was that day. I don't know. I can't remember when I got in, but whatever my first run was, I went out to just run. And there was like dozens of little kids trying to follow me along the road running. Like I was a spectacle, right? Running out kind of on the outskirts of town on the side of this road with all the cars and bikes. And there was a lot of bikes over there. By yourself? Yeah. And, um, there was a, I saw a runner, the first runner I saw. And I was, I was like, I got to go talk to this guy. Because at this point, I, it slowly had dawned on me in the first 10 hours there I was there that like, this, was, this wasn't panning out the way. I, I, couldn't, I had no idea where the sizzler was. I couldn't find the sizzler. So that, that was out the door. But so I'm back on this run, right? And I, I see this guy. I go up to him and I say, hi. Well, we're both running. He was running easy. And it was... Um, I said, you know, what's your name? Where are you from? Whatever. And it was Julius Ashon, who was uh, George Mason, I believe, University. Yeah, I remember He was like him. a 144, 800 guy. Yeah. Very, very accomplished. I didn't recognize him, but he's from Uganda. And he um, said that was his name. I knew who he was. I was obviously a, a track nut. So um, I was super stoked to meet somebody I knew or meet anybody, really. And... Um, we jogged a little bit, and I think he, he had mentioned to me that there was a sports store in town that the Kanos owned, Kip Kano's family. And so that was, okay, there's my next deal. So I was like, okay, so I'll go find that. So I finished the run, asked around, found the store, went in, and um, Martin Kano was there. Uh, Bob's son, who was a really accomplished runner in his own right. And he went to Arizona, and his younger brother, Bob, who was a year older than me, went to Arizona also. And Bob was in town, Martin said. And that not only that, but the family has this orphanage, which is also an Olympic training center on the outskirts of town, and I should come stay there. And 
this, this all happened in like 24, 48 hours by like the second day. Because you had no lodging security. I'm at the wagon wheel, like sketched out when I go for my run that I'm going to come back, my bags and my passport will be gone. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was very, it was very narrow, the ledge there. (laughs) And uh, so I was, I was, and and not only that, but Martin and Bob had gone to school in the U.S. They were wonderfully welcoming and, and their mother was too. Kip wasn't around that much, but their mother's a saint and they had hundreds of orphans they've adopted and, and raised in this home they had outside of, uh, in Eldoret, but kind of on the outside. Mm-hmm. So I ended up staying there for six weeks and they had wonderful meals and they had training groups I'd go with uh, every morning and afternoon to run. It was mostly like the local guys, by local guys, they'd be like some like 17 year old kid who would be like a national champion in the US who worked on the farm all day and would run with us twice a day. And then every, like once or twice a week, we'd drive to, um, we'd drive up the hill to um, Koptegat, which yeah. is close to E10. That's where Kipchoge's camp is. Okay, yeah, it's a great place to run. It was higher. We were at like seven, mm-hmm. and that place was like eight, if I remember right. It's on the edge of the Rift Valley. And very tropical, though. So it was like high, but not dry. And there'd be like this group over there of like 100 people starting their run in the dark at 5.30 in the morning, and then, but Martin would be like, no, we're going with this group over here. And so I'd just tag along, and um, I was able to keep up, but I was working harder than they were for sure. But just the fact that I was able to keep up was, was every day was, uh, my adrenaline was on every time we'd go, whether it would be just the daily run around the house or going up there to work out. I, I did workouts with Daniel Komen, um, and this was two years after he set the world record, or world records. Um, there were a bunch of hitters in that group, and it was amazing. That's incredible. I was full. It was like there's fan mode, and then there's like there's fan mode in the U.S., and then there's like fan mode over there in a pre-internet version of fan mode when everything – there was no like Kipchoge posting videos on Instagram. Like, that was like another world over there. Mm-hmm. And so it was six weeks, and I was – horribly homesick and and thrilled to come back but i wouldn't trade in for the world to have that experience and it framed things so before that with my own personal running i had done well and i had some glimpses of how well i could do if everything lined up right i had a really good cross-country season in college in 2000 uh, in 1997 um, I was 15th in the U.S. Nationals, the, the real Nationals, not the college one, um, in tough conditions when I was – I probably would have been top 10 in the NCAAs, but I didn't qualify because of the way the qualifying rules worked. Mm. And I was super pissed, so I went to Portland to the U.S. Nationals to prove to myself and everyone that I was good, and I had a great race. It was, it was a, but it was like a glimpse. And then the next year I got hurt, and then the next year I didn't run as well. And before, it was just these little moments. And there was a couple in high school like that too, where it was like things were kind of so-so, but there was little hits where it was like you're with, you're with the guys who were at the top or you're close enough to them to see that this could work out. And then it got taken away. And then when I went to Kenya, it was like, okay, I always sensed that there was a difference where I had to kind of step up to a higher level of training and fitness if I was going to really be as good as I wanted to be. And when I saw how hard those guys were willing to work on a daily basis. Just reframed your perspective. Complete reframe. And after that, for the next 10 years when I was a competitive runner, I had a very different reference point 
than most of the guys I raced and trained with, with, with a few exceptions, um, for sure. Um, and, and that, that helped a lot. Like while you were there, did you gain confidence every day that you were able to hang with these guys or leave there with the confidence that, okay, if I stay on this because I've seen some glimpses of what's possible for myself and keep working hard that I can actually realize it. Yeah. Every day, every day I got more, more confident that I could do it. And you'd see people, you know, you'd see people come in, like there's some European guys that came in, um, this, this, um, Swiss guy, Victor Rotland ended up running like 207. Mm -hmm. He, he came in with a little training group, um, there are people that would come through that you'd meet and stuff, and it was like, okay, I'm I'm not crazy. I'm not the only person who thinks that this that that something's happening here. Yeah, I mean, obviously something was happening because, because they're really good. But like, um, yeah, every day I'd gain confidence, and then when I came back to the states, you know, I had a few races that were good but not great. And then I said, okay, I wasn't based in Berkeley still, and I said, okay, I got I gotta like figure out what the next game is. And like you said earlier, there weren't many training groups. There was the Hanson's group, which was just starting. Alberto was just starting the Oregon project. There was like five guys in that at the time. And they were definitely not interested in me. Thank God. Um, Cause I would have probably gone to something like that if the door opened. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Nike farm team had been going for a couple of years and I had a, some friends who had been involved, like Richie Boulay, I mentioned earlier, where it was a cow with me and he had trained down there. And, um, but I was a Cal guy and that was a Stanford deal. Right. So it was like, I was a little nervous too. And I talked to some of the guys down there and they're, you know, they're so friendly. Cause I basically got my ass kicked for five years of college by the Stanford guys. There's a few times when I had great races, I could, I could get up close to their top guys, but it was basically a shellacking for our whole team by them. Um, and I didn't know what they thought of me. And it wasn't that the whole farm team was Stanford guys. It wasn't by any means, but but I remember talking to a few of the guys and they were like, no, you're cool. Like, come on down. It was like this, they're very welcoming. And Vin is, I love Vin. Like he, um, he coached the guys that kicked my ass for five years and he recruited me in college and I ended up going to Cal yeah. and he, he coached me those first couple of years and it was just a great, but the point being like, I saw this training set up in Kenya with the group and I came back home and there was not a lot of great options but then it was like oh there's this one in my backyard let's but you, go do you that you knew you kind of needed a group i knew i needed a group um i knew i needed to be around i, I remember at the time having this th- thought in my mind it's a catchphrase that's kind of corny in hindsight but it was like who are the makers of champions like who are the coaches that actually like in the u.s that made champions and at the time it was like okay mark wetmore in colorado my frame reference was college coaches at the time. Mark Wetmore made champions. Adam Goucher was a champion. Uh, Ritz was not there yet, but, you know. Culpepper. Yeah, Culpepper for sure. Um, and Vin. Vin made champions. And so I said, okay, I got to get linked up with something like that at home because that was the closest reference point I had to what I saw in Kenya. And and it worked great. And And then a year and a half later, fast forward, Jack Daniels shows up. And then it was like, it was all these little uh, waypoints. Yeah, yeah, it really did. And, you know, they were all very random, the fact that they did come together. Mm. Back to Kenya, aside from the fact that they had so much more depth, I mean, you show up and there's just these massive groups going out for different workouts. 
what did you take away from their mentality and their approach to training that stuck with you? The workouts weren't any different than here. That was one thing. Um, they had big groups, but it would just be like a coach who was usually sort of disconnected on the back of a pickup truck, standing backwards with a bullhorn yelling stuff at the athletes from the front of the group. And there'd be like 60 guys. And it, basically it was like when to start the fart lick, when to stop it three minutes later and, or who's going to take the lead. Mm-hmm. Oh, side thing on one of them, this happened to be with the Komen group. We were doing some kind of like a version of three minutes on one minute off. I can't remember the details of it. Something like that. And the, the, whoever this coach guy was, I, I can't remember anything about him except the fact that he had a megaphone and was on a pickup truck. We'd like yell who was going to go lead the group through the next one. And at one point he yelled something and everybody looked at me and I was like, and they're like, he wants you to go. And so I went to the front and dude, the adrenaline bomb. I don't know. I might never have run three minutes that fast in my life. It was, it, it was, I did not expect that. And um, I didn't, I haven't even remembered that probably for 15 years till just now. But that was really cool. Yeah. But the other takeaway, to get back to your question, that circled back in my training years later, we talked earlier about going slow and further. At a certain point, going slow and further and doing Jack's workouts got me a long way. And then as anything, you get used to it and you have to add something else. One thing those guys did on a, almost a daily basis was like a progression run. Like the, the, the usual daily 10 miler would start at nine minute pace for the first 15 minutes. Like no joke, like these guys were going very, Crawling. very slow. And then it would pick up and pick up. And then by like, I don't know, there was no set time, say 30, 35 minutes, you were moving pretty hard. And then it stayed pretty hard through the end. And that was like, that wasn't the workout. That was the other runs. And so I, re, I brought that back probably like 2006, something like that, right around the time I, had, I had, um, was at my peak marathon training and, and performance. I folded that back in like one day a week at first. And it wasn't like all out at the end. It was just reasonably hard. The rest of the easy days were really easy. And that provided me a step up when I needed a little bit more and I, then I'd add like two days and it worked out pretty well. Um, and I still use that from time to time, actually not from time to time, pretty regularly as a, as a training tool, just another little thing. It doesn't take that much out of you, but if you, if you hit some of that pace on a semi-regular basis, it can be just a little extra something. Yeah. Do you think it just kind of leaves you stimulated for the workout the next day or? It, it does. I mean, it, there's a couple things. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it improves your aerobic system on a high level, which, you know, as much as I like the long, slow run, it's a different stimulus. The other thing is it, it, you're moving faster. You're, it's, a, it's a help with your economy of running. Um, and then it's just, uh, you know, from a marathon perspective, it's a metabolic, it's a running pace at a metabolic thing. You know, with the marathon, so much of it is preserving glycogen. Mm-hmm. And if you're running a lot of miles and you add something like that in, you're always low on glycogen, so you're if within a higher mileage training program, you're forced to run at a reasonably fast pace with presumably a low level of glycogen in your system, which every time you can do that is advances your cause for mm-hmm. running a fast marathon. All right, two things before we wrap this up. You have mentioned your time with the farm team and how at that point there just weren't many groups here 
in the U.S. But the the farm team was one of the the best ones. I remember like watching them during those years. Um, you know, Matt Lane, the Housers, as you had mentioned, I think was Lucchini on that team, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he was at, he was um, an undergrad at Stanford during those first few years, mm-hmm. and um, and then and then he was training a little bit after I think, but that was more toward the time I was exiting stage left. Yeah. Than he was with that. Yeah. But I mean, just since then, especially now, there's just been a proliferation of training groups throughout the country. And a lot of things have changed. Social media being one of the, the, the biggest things there, but I mean, depth across the board here has gotten better. Kids in high school are running crazy times. College is out of this world right now. The professional level is just like, Every year, seemingly for the past few years, like the bar is just like keep keep getting raised. Like if you step back from it, having having been in it during that time and observing now, like what's happening? How does how does that make you feel as someone who was in the sport in the early two thousands and is now still in the sport but just not at that level? I'm I'm super excited to see how fast everybody's going and how much it's it's gone forward. And I love the the multitude of groups and so many of those groups really came out of people who were athletes in those original groups. Yeah, like, that's a good point. Like Ben Rosario is a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, I raced against him when he was on the Hanson's team. I raced or trained with him in Flagstaff when he was there kind of on his own training thing then. And he took the ball and ran with it. He saw what worked and said, this is something we can take and expand upon. And it's fabulous. We talked about Pete Julian, same thing in, in his deal um, in, in a very different way up there in Portland. And, and a lot of other examples too, like um, seeing what, what Ritz is doing with his group is, is phenomenal. I'm a huge fan. Um, and, and I love that all these athletes were able to stay in the sport. I, frankly, I'm a little jealous of it, that they're able to stay in the sport and contribute in that way. Because to be honest, part of me in this whole journey is like, well, I, I would like to give back to the sport in a way that I haven't been able to yet. I will when the time is right and I have the capacity to do it, um, whether that takes the form of just high school coaching or something else. I don't know what it'll be, but yeah. it's on my radar for sure. Yeah. Well, to to interrupt you there, I mean, you're going to start doing that with this podcast that you're putting That's out. true. I mean, that's a way to give back to the sport. I mean, as someone who's a little bit younger than you, but has been in it for a while, like I, I look at that and I'm like, that is a very meaningful contribution that is going to help a lot of people. So I'm I'm excited that you're you're thinking that way, and you kind of almost like overlook this thing that you're working on. That's now. true. It's a good point. It's a but, good point. But have like designs on like, oh well, what else? You know, what else can you do? Whether it's like coaching, whether it's mentoring, or you know, something else altogether. Yeah, we'll get it'll 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 happen when it happens. Yeah, it's definitely on the radar. My last question is a very selfish one, but as someone who is now your teammate and just turned forty himself, what advice do you have for me or anyone else who? is just getting into their master's years of training and racing? Ooh, good question. Um, first of all, it's much lower stress, so enjoy that part of it. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't have to be all that it was on that end, um, and we talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, you're, not the same, you're not in the same body that you were earlier, so you got to figure out you know, whether it be nutrition stuff or you know, stretching slash rehab stuff all that, or prehab, I guess probably a better way to say it, because mm-hmm. you don't want to have, you know, you do the prehab right, you don't have to do the rehab. Um, that's been a big change for me. I just spend a lot more time 
on that kind of stuff than I used to. Yeah, um, we, we can't get away it. with quite as much now as we did, say, 20 years ago. Yeah, uh, I, yeah I wish I would have realized that then. Me too. <laughs> because it would have saved me a lot of grief. I remember, I, I don't know if, if, if I don't know, I, I heard um, Jonathan Pierce, mm-hmm. who ran at Stanford when I was, during those years, on the farm team, who's a very successful exercise, I don't know, not physiologist, that's not the right term, a trainer slash uh, coach uh, who helps a lot of people with injuries. And, and I've had him on the podcast, body worker. That's, that's where I, that's where I must've heard the, I forgot it was on, 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 um, on his, his conversation with you. He said something like, uh, at the time he was at Stanford, something like 40 minutes a day you should spend on all this other stuff. I did not spend 40 minutes a day <laughs> for sure, but I wish I would have. And, uh, I definitely do now. Um, and that's, that's key on the, on the master's old guy, uh, keeping it together. Because you don't want to be held together by duct tape when you're 50. Uh, that's, that's not a good, sustainable plan. Well, that's a great takeaway. I am going to take it to heart. I thank you so much for welcoming me into your home and joining me on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you, Mario. Great to be here. And uh, I really look forward to this fall. It's going to be so much fun racing and training with you uh, on the West Valley Track Club. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait myself. And Nationals is here in San Francisco in our backyard. So I know that's just, you know, making us hungry to have a good day out there. And, you know, we, we talked about it earlier in, in this podcast. Don't want you um, having to sit there with disappointment again for another day or two afterward. We'll do what we can to reverse that this fall. Yeah, I, I'm going to do all I I can and everybody's hungry for for that race and to do well so it'll be fun what however it turns out we're going to enjoy ourselves all right looking forward to it brother all right that's it for this episode of the morning shakeout podcast thank you so much for taking the time to listen in also a big thank you to tracksmith for help making it possible tracksmith is an independent running brand inspired by a deep love of the sport Their summer collection is now available and features staples ready for your next adventure, including the Run Cannonball Run Shorts, the Off-Road Shorts, the Run Cannonball Run Tee, and a lot more. By using the code MARIO22 at checkout, you can receive free shipping on your order and 5% of your purchase will go to support the Brave Like Gabe Foundation to fund rare cancer research. Before we wrap this one up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to Chris Douglas for being my right-hand man and handling sponsorship sales, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys have been crucial in helping keep things running smoothly here. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe for a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to lately that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>